Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. It's your DC Spotlight for the week of July 13th, 2021. We're going to be talking about a slate of books that are coming out this week. Uh, but first, we have to talk about a, a bit of heart, heartbreaking news, really. I mean, I was definitely saddened when I learned today that Robson Roca uh, has passed away. Um, yes, we know terrible been, news. Yeah, just, I mean, it, he's been battling COVID for a while. Uh, a few weeks ago, there was the call put out to donate blood. He, he needed blood. And, I mean, that's always a good thing to do. Unfortunately, I, I couldn't donate blood for him. He's in, he's in Brazil. Um, so, you know, put the call out on social media. Anybody who could, who could donate. Uh, I, he was very young. I think in his late 20s or early 30s. I'm not exactly sure exactly how old he was. But uh, Brazilian artist, super talented. As far as American comics go, I, I think he's only worked for DC. I know he was DC exclusive ever since 2016, but when I went and looked uh, and tried to find see if he'd done any other things, I don't think that he he had. Um, but he's done work for DC as far back as as 2011. Uh, he did some work for the New 52 books like Demon Knights. There was a uh, the, the DC Universe presents a New 52 book, which had rotating creative teams and rotating. Um, stories about different uh, characters of the DCU. He did some work on the New 52 Teen Titans, the Superboy title, some uh, some Birds of Prey stuff, some of the Huntress and Power Girl, which was uh, World's Finest, that uh, kind of focused on Earth 2, World's Finest, which I thought was a great title. Yeah, uh, He was a contributor to uh, every one of the, the weekly books that DC put out in the mid-2010s, uh, the the Earth Two Worlds End, the the future, um, not future state, <laughs> stuck on the future state, uh, but the Batman Eternal, the uh, the World's End, and there was a third, there was a third, third one that I can't think of the name of now that he also contributed to. That was a, a weekly series. Um, so yeah, I mean, just yeah. a huge loss. Uh, well, I mean, his I, Aquaman I think- with uh, Kelly Sue DeConnick is what I remember, the, where he just he really shone with that. With yeah, I think a lot of people. Well, because that was so. Rebirth was in 2016, and that coincided with Robson signing his uh, his contract for uh, exclusive contract for DC. Mm-hmm. So that's when he started getting regular monthly work. Before that, he'd done some covers, he'd done some fill in. Like I said, he'd worked on those weekly books, and. Uh, you saw his work on Hal Jordan and the Green Lantern Corps and Rebirth when that launched. He was on that book. Then he moved over to the Green Lanterns, which was also really, really awesome. But then, yeah, the Kelly Sue DeConnick run on Aquaman is where people really started to notice his work. I think because a lot of people jumped on that book at that time just because it was Kelly Sue DeConnick, her first DC work, and it, it got a little bit more kind of play in the mainstream comic media. And so a lot of people, that was their first exposure to him. I had been a fan of his probably ever since I first saw his work, just here or there. But then I remember talking to Robert Venditti, who was uh, the Hal Jordan and the Green Lantern Corps writer. And he, before the book even came out, I was talking to Robert about it. And he was talking about how amazing uh, Robson's work was on that book. And sure enough, when it came out, it just blew me away. So, but you're right. I, I think the Aquaman book is the one that a lot of people finally started to take notice on. And 
Uh, a lot of times he was working with inker Daniel Enriquez, uh, who's another Brazilian artist. And, you know, Daniel put out a heartfelt message on Twitter today, that, you know, feels like he lost a brother. And, you know, my heart goes out to anybody that worked with Robson. Um, Daniel had mentioned that he became uh, a father for the first time on that Aquaman run. Well, uh, so did Robson. And coincidentally, <laughs> You know, Aquaman and Mira had a baby during that run. So I think it was something really special for them. And uh, Kelly Sue DeConnick as well put out a, a message on Twitter basically saying she, she can't believe that he's gone. He was so young. And she didn't even really have words to express her, her sorrow. So by all accounts, I never got the chance to meet him. But by all accounts, he was a very humble artist and um, a very loving father and a devoted husband. So uh, Jim Lee put out a, a statement on Twitter as well. I would imagine that in the upcoming Aquaman book, I wouldn't be surprised to see some sort of um, tribute, but I, I don't know. It may already be printed, uh, so I'm not 100% on that. But I would I would assume at some point in the next couple of months, you're going to see some sort of tribute to, to Rob. Because like I said, he was a, a DC exclusive artist and um, somebody who, whose art I loved, I admired. I, I would love to have had a commission by him or some original art. Um, so yeah, it's, it's just too bad, um, that he passed away. And all I can say to those people out there that haven't been vaccinated, you know, I mean, Robson was by all accounts, young and healthy before this bout with COVID-19, go get vaccinated, please do it for your loved ones, do it for yourself. This virus doesn't mess around. Uh, and it can take anybody. Robson was young and healthy before this bout with COVID. So it's a real tragedy. Um, obviously for his family and for the people that knew him and were close with him. And it really a tragedy for us fans who loved his work. I think about all the incredible comics that he's never going to get a chance to, to draw. I mean, his line work, his sense of storytelling, uh, his sense of mood. Um, yeah. And I, I, there's, you can go, you can just go and Google his name and you can come up with any number of these uh, pages. And I especially love the ones where it's just his pencil work. Uh, and not necessarily colored because you can see what an eye for detail, what an eye for uh, emotion he has. I mean, look at Aquaman's face there when he's holding uh, Andy Curry, you know, Amazing. Uh, the shading in the face and and just the the emotion that, that comes across in that panel. So, yeah, a real loss. I was I was pretty gutted when I heard about Robson's passing uh, today. Uh, and this is Sunday as we record this uh, was when the news broke that he uh, he had passed on. Um, although you won't hear this till uh, Tuesday. Um, but yeah, just I, I, just I, devastating. I don't have much to add to what you say. I mean, what do you say when when somebody you know we, we've we've lost one of our uh, living. Living legends, you know these these are the future legends. These are the these are the ones where you know we're we're, we're always you know we're always talking about we we want the best talent on 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 DC and 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 he was he was he was clearly one of the best and and I'm not I don't say that lightly. He was really that good, and it's so tragic. It's so frustrating. You know, I mean, you know, you've heard that old you know the old expression "f cancer." Well, you know, f COVID. You know, I mean, this yep. is uh, enough already. This is absolutely terrible. I mean, it's still with us, and I don't know how Brazil. I mean, I, you know, I mean, not not every country in the world. You know, some countries are still struggling with it, and this is just a just a really unpleasant, terrible reminder that uh, you know we're we're losing we're losing 
some tremendously talented people and uh you know certainly condolences to uh Mr. Roca's family and uh thank God he gifted us with the talents as long as he did and uh yeah yeah just it's a sad day sad it day. is I mean there he comes from that stable of brilliant artists that are absolutely incredible I totally agree with you Rocky he was one of the best artists at DC certainly top three to five uh, I would put him in that range for sure um you know of, of and I'm talking about artists that are working on a monthly book you know we all know jim lee's a legend and and whatever but jim lee does cover or pin up here or there or whatever he's not doing monthly books anymore but you talk about guys like yvonne reese uh eduardo passerin uh robson roca uh you know these are guys that were just you know top of their game month in month out putting out super super quality work uh and it's it's just too bad that we're not going to see his uh, his pencils anymore so there, there we will still see a little bit of work uh like i said he's got I think a pinup and probably a story in the Aquaman 80th anniversary that's coming up. There may be some other uh, unseen DC work that he's got, but uh, a real, a real loss. So, all right, well, on to, uh, on to brighter uh, <laughs> sort of topics as we dive in here. Uh, I was going to start with a certain other book, but I, I won't because I do want to start on a positive note. Uh, so we'll start with Batman, the detective, uh, last we saw, Bruce Wayne was being arrested at the end of uh, issue three. Uh, so we'll see how that all plays out in uh, issue four here. It's written by Tom Taylor. We have pencils by Andy Kubert, inks are by Sandra Hope, colors by Brad Anderson, letters by Clem Robbins. Uh, what do you think of this one, Rocky? Uh, well, uh, I, I actually enjoyed this. This is uh, most of this, the bulk of this issue. Uh, the uh, last issue, the third issue, ended with Bruce Wayne being arrested, an older uh, Bruce Wayne. Or he, he actually uh, allowed himself to be apprehended by police because he actually wanted to know what the police know, so, knew uh, in terms of... Uh, because somebody is killing off all, all of Batman's... Uh, everyone that Batman's ever saved in his career, the, there is this... Uh, terrorist group that is killing off all the people that Batman has killed apart that Batman has killed that Batman has saved in his life. And, and that's, it's sort of, it's ruining Batman's legacy. And, uh, you know, this is an older Bruce Wayne, a jaded Bruce Wayne a little bit. And all, and he's ha, has a, uh, the sense that we have with this older uh, Bruce Wayne, it looks like Tom Taylor's writing an older jaded Bruce Wayne that maybe has lost some, some aspects, some connections to his family. Alfred is dead. He's got a, maybe a dysfunctional relationship with uh, former members of the Bat family. And so the, the only legacy that Batman has are, are the people that he's saved. And so it's interesting that he wants to know what the police know because he wants to find out as much as possible. And also uh, Henri uh, Ducard, uh, one of, one of the, one of his early mentors was was also shot, and so he wants to find out uh, if Ducart's okay because Ducart was uh, also attacked by the terrorists. And the the interrogation scene here, Tom Taylor scripts it very very well. I love how we how we get into Bruce Wayne's head and how he's thinking and how he's sort of you know he's sort of playing these these two cops that are interrogating him. He's sort of you know he's he's putting up a pretty good facade, pretending to, you know, be like the cocky, arrogant, you know, drinking Bruce Wayne. And they're, they're, they're showing him pictures of various crime scenes and asking him if he knows anything about it because they think that Bruce Wayne might be a suspect or at least that's how, you know, you, you, it's, you're led to believe that. And 
And I just really like how Tom Taylor gets this into the head of Bruce Wayne because he recognizes all the victims because as Batman, he saved them all. And you can, th- there, there's a really effective uh, juxtaposition between the, what you could almost feel what Bruce, uh, the Batman side of Bruce Wayne is feeling because he sees all these people that he saved and he sees their corpses in these crime scenes. And they ask him, do you know any of these people? And then he wants to say yes, but he can't. He says, of course, he, you know, he, he recognizes all of them. He remembers all of them, saving them. And, uh, but he says that he says that he doesn't because he's just, he's just there to get information from the police. And ultimately there is uh there's some misdirection because it ends up that in fact, this is this is the terrorist group. I think Equilibrium, I think, was what they're called. Yeah. Um, and uh, they're, 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 they, in fact, suspect that Bruce Wayne might be Batman, and they're there. And they, they of course, they ultimately conclude that Bruce Wayne is too damn old to be Batman, and so they try to just poison Bruce Wayne. And ultimately, Bruce Wayne, uh, you know, Taylor is so good at writing Batman. He's Bruce Wayne slows down his heartbeat, so the poison takes longer to get effect to take effect Bruce Wayne ultimately escapes uh ultimately escapes uh and leaves the precinct and is fortunately the squire of the night and squire squire is there the new squire to to take a rush Bruce to a pharmacy and he knows exactly what medicines to take and i i just thought this was really action packed this was this was a lot of fun i really enjoyed this issue from the interrogation scene to the escape to the narrow escape to the bruce wayne fighting for his life and ultimately ending up in a portable bat cave that is so cool that has uh has an oracle that has a you know the the computer is oracle and i'm not sure if barbara gordon's still around but i just really love the callbacks here i think it i I think this is my this is my favorite issue so far, and I've been enjoying the previous issues. There's even a flashback he has of past loves and his past relationships. I thought it was very effective. Tom Taylor, like, really, you know, I think he really he hit all the high notes on this one. And uh, like I said, I I really enjoyed this. And uh, even the he's got a crazy <laughs> a crazy looking portable uh, bat cave there, and I don't know if that's a it almost looks like a an eighteen wheeler bat cave or something, but it just looks just looks incredible. But uh, I I enjoyed this. I enjoyed this, and I thought. Uh, I mean, I've. This reminds me of the best parts of Frank Miller, even though it's it just happens to be written by Tom Taylor. <laughs> I don't know, man. What do you think? Yeah, I wasn't as big of a fan. I thought it was okay. I I didn't think it was the best issue of the series. I think still the the first issue stands out as the strongest. Uh, there's just a few things that, and I think it's just a matter of taste that aren't that aren't working for me. Um, I, t- I talked about it from the beginning. This sort of hulking Bruce Wayne that Andy Kubert has given us hasn't been the the best. It just it just doesn't feel like Bruce Wayne to me. Uh, I mean, guy's got like uh, a high and tight, like he's in the Marines. That that's just never Bruce Wayne to me. It just doesn't feel like like Bruce. And I get it. It's supposed to be an older Bruce Wayne and. Um, that sort of weathered look. I mean, the fact that his, his hands are scarred up. I mean, that doing those little details, putting those little nuances in there, uh, you know, just the character in the face and, and the age wrinkles in the face, that works for me. Uh, but, but overall, I, I'm, just not, I'm just not a fan of the way Andy Kubert draws, uh, draws Bruce Wayne here. 
Uh, I think he looks great when he's in the Batman costume, which is, you know, a little bit more of a, a street or an urban. He's got, you know, goggles on. He's got a, like a trench coat with a collar, you know, this high collar that's popped up. I, I do like that aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like more of the Batman design than the Bruce Wayne design. I will say that uh, with the exception of the first issue, we've had Sandra Hope on inks. And we talked a little bit about the first issue about some inconsistency in the, the pencil work. So I'm really glad that Sandra's here because she's uh, just an incredible inker. And the textures that she adds, despite the fact that I don't care for this choice of this older Bruce Wayne, the way he looks, the way that they actually draw him is spectacular. The, you know, the stubble, those age lines, like I said, um, the textures, the shadows, it, it does in a way feel European. So I do like that. There's a, a, quite a few montage pieces in here that work really, really well. Uh, you know, Rocky pointed out there's one with uh, kind of Bruce Wayne's loves, you know, that Superman's there, Wonder Woman, Talia, Catwoman, Alfred, of course, his parents, and then all the people he's rescued over over the years. Um, so I think, you know, art-wise, it's fantastic. Brad Anderson is an incredible color artist, so I have no problems there. Clem Robbins does a good job of keeping this – pretty fast-paced issue moving um, with the dialogue and where he places the word balloons and whatnot. It, it gets a little wordy sometimes, and so he does do a good job, especially during those interrogation scenes where you have both the interrogators and Bruce Wayne speaking as well as Bruce Wayne narrating, uh, and that can be kind of tricky sometimes, uh, and I think letter, letters don't get enough credit. It can be hard, and I, there's comics where there's so much going on, and when that's not done correctly, I've got a go through and read the pages of word balloons to see what's going on currently. And then I've got to go through and read the caption boxes to hear, to get the narration um, because they're not flowing together. Well, and Clem Robbins doesn't have that problem. I I read them all simultaneously. I didn't feel like I I missed out on anything. Um, Narratively though, one of the things that kind of bugged me was the fact that Bruce Wayne did fall for that. Like he's Batman, right? Like he's supposed to know more than the other guys. And I was perfectly happy to, to, see the the plot point of Tom Taylor saying, yes, he allowed himself to be arrested because he wanted to know what the police know. But you're telling me Batman wouldn't pick up on the fact that these weren't really the police. This was equilibrium and he would allow himself to be poisoned. He wouldn't realize, I mean, supposedly colorless, tasteless, odorless, whatever kind of poison. You just, it's Batman. You expect more. Um, And maybe this is an older Batman and he's slowed down a bit. And so he doesn't have those skills. Okay. I can buy that. But then how does he still remember every single person he's ever rescued with you know perfect recall Mm, how is he still strong enough to to physically break these handcuffs you know like so is he an older batman whose skills are diminishing or not you know so there were little things like that little discrepancies that i didn't um i didn't necessarily buy I, i would rather think okay maybe he is slipping maybe he he would get caught in this trap um and maybe he shouldn't remember everybody he's rescued. Like, I get what Tom Taylor's trying to do. It's that important to him. Uh, but I kind of like the idea that he wouldn't, that he didn't. I would have been better if he somehow picked his the locks on his handcuffs rather than breaking them. Uh, because when it comes down to the end and he gets to the mobile uh, back cave, well, even before that, when he does get Squire's help and he takes whatever the antidote is for his poison, but it's still he's still out for like four days or two days or however long it was, um, the fact that his body doesn't recover as fast because he is older. And when they get to that portal portable bat cave at the end, he is going to call up uh, everybody, all his allies in Europe um, 
the the uh, alliance of the bat, the European alliance of the bat, as he calls it. Uh, and that's important because, again, maybe he has lost lost a step. Maybe he does need help. So I like that kind of avenue better. But then I think there are inconsistencies. He wouldn't. I don't think he would remember every single face of every person he's ever rescued, especially when he does things like at the beginning of Tom King's Batman run where he saves the plane from flying into crashing into the bridge. Um, okay. He didn't even see everybody that was on that plane. How's he going to remember every face? Um, so I would have preferred him not remembering every face. I would have preferred him not physically having the strength to break the the uh, the handcuffs because especially he's trying to slow his heart to to prevent the poison. That's got to get his heart pumping and the blood pumping and circulate the poison. So there's a couple discrepancies. I know I'm nitpicking on things. Um, I am still in, enjoying the story, but uh, you know I got to call a spade a spade, and I, I did notice those things when I was uh, when I was reading them. So. Yeah, I, 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 I can, I can see that. I, I'm cutting him a little bit of slack. I, don't, I don't think. I think he underestimated Equilibrium. I didn't think that he would. Uh, he clearly never thought that they would go after Bruce Wayne. Although it's a legitimate criticism to say, well, he should have known maybe they'd go after Bruce Wayne because he's always had, he's had Batman save his alter ego in the past. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> a few times, so he, it would make sense that he should know that Bruce Wayne is a target and that he could. You know, he could have set a trap for equilibrium knowing that, you know, Bruce Wayne, he himself is a, a is a high profile target. So uh, that's that's and that might even he might even still go with that in the in the final two issues. Who knows? But uh, yeah, it would have been an interesting way to, to go about it because you're right. Either either they know Bruce Wayne is Batman. So Bruce Wayne is a target or Bruce Wayne has been saved multiple times by Batman. So Bruce Wayne is a target. Either way, Bruce Wayne is a target. Uh, before we move on to the next book, I do want to mention in the back of the uh, all the DC books this month or this week, uh, we have a house ad, a, a couple pager here, house ad, which I think is just fantastic. I used to love these house ads when I was a kid to let me know what was going on with DC Comics and whatnot. So we get this house ad. It's, it's like uh, Director Bones holding this uh, tablet where he's it's like this memo, this inter-office memo and the multiversal mysteries to be solved. And there's all these questions. And then uh, we see Bones then looking at these multiversal monitors. And then the following, we have discover the answers here. And there's a bunch of uh, upcoming DC titles and currently uh, current titles that DC mentions that, hey, this is where Infinite Frontier is going right now. And just a way to kind of pull people in. If you're only reading one title or another, hey, there's a lot of stuff going on. Um, there's a hero with the Black Lantern ring. Is Jonathan Kent going to be able to be Superman? There's a little tease for Fear State, which is the Batman event that's coming up. I, I just like this. It, it it reminds us that these DC books are connected. And, you know, Rocky would be the first one to point out that the editors at DC haven't been doing the best <laughs> job with continuity for the last Oh, I don't know, maybe ten or fifteen years, um, but it, but at least at least they're and and I'm not here to point out where they've screwed up in recent times either. I do feel like it's getting better, but maybe I'm just giving them a pass because, I mean, coming out of Future State, I didn't know what to expect, and my expectations were pretty low, honestly. Um, but we've seen so many things tie in together, uh, mentions of of you know events from other books, Suicide Squad and Teen Titans, and. Um, you know, everything in the Batman books sort of tying together and Catwoman and, and, and Harley with Poison Ivy and whatnot. So it's just a reminder that, yes, this is the same universe. Everything is tied in. I don't know. I, I just, when I read the first week's book and I saw this ad, I was like, 
uh, you know, I saw this first page asking the questions and obviously I'm, I'm current on all my DC stuff. So, you know, I'm like, okay, this has got to be some kind of a infinite frontier teaser. And sure enough it is. And we'll talk about the infinite frontier second issue uh, in a couple minutes, but I just, I liked it. I liked the fact that DC put this in there yeah. reminds me of the house uh, ads of old and, yeah. uh, I feel well, like DC's much, their universe is much more tight, much more cohesive. It feels like to me right now than Marvel's is. Yeah, and it's it comes coming off the heels of 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 Infinite Frontier Secret Files, which basically uh, was originally a digital series. It the entire series, all six issues of those digital series, were encapsulated in in a Secret Files comic that we reviewed last week, and that was Director Bones on his tablet, essentially each individual. Uh, chapter was director bone sort of reviewing and, and exploring different aspects of the multiverse different earths and a lot of some of these questions relate to some of those mysteries some of these aren't really mysteries anymore some of these we, some of these questions we already know the answers to or we think we do and but it's nice because new readers especially or readers most people are not like you and I, Jace, obviously, that we're, we're reviewing every single, we're reading every right. single DC comic. So it's, it, I agree with you that it's really nice to have this, that, you know, out of these eight questions, and there's there's actually other questions uh, as well, uh, out of these eight questions, it's bound to interest, you know, hopefully at least one of these questions, it's hoped will interest somebody out there if they're thinking of maybe checking out dc comics or if they're god forbid thinking of dropping a few comics maybe this will keep them keep them uh interested yeah if people are not reading wonder woman or not reading flash uh you know reading one of these questions may get them interested in checking those out like what's yeah. the god sphere um what does that mean has the fastest man out run his path his past you know yeah, I know. Well, I think the Godspurs where Wonder Woman is right now. Quite yeah, frankly, yeah, exactly. I think that's where yeah. she is. She's she's trapped yeah. in the in not a well, she's trapped on Olympus now, or she's she's in between. She's in that she was in the graveyard of the gods, and then she's going to be on Olympus, and then she's sort of trapped in that god sphere. I think that's what they're calling it. And eventually, how is she going to get back to the land of the living? I don't know. I think that's what that is, but we'll have to wait and see. I guess. Yeah, uh, but again, you and I, you and I know that we've been reading Wonder Woman. Maybe somebody's <laughs> not, and that just that kind of God. Wait, God's fear. Wait, where's Wonder Woman at? And it, you know, it might it might prompt somebody to pick up the book, which is exactly what these house ads are supposed to do. So, yeah. uh, all right, moving on, we're going to talk a little Future State Gotham issue number three. Uh, the main story is written by Joshua Williamson and Dennis Culver. Art is by Giannis Milogiannis, uh, lettered by ALW's Troy Petrie. There's no colors, so there's no colors there. There is a backup uh, story with Harley Quinn at, and Batman, I, I suppose. <laughs> he does show up in the final page. Uh, it's by Doug Alexander and Rob Haynes uh, with Mark Chiarello listed as the heckler. So I think that means editor. <laughs> Not 100% sure on that. But um, anyway, I got to say I was I was pretty disappointed in this. I, I have said, we have said in the past that we feel like the fact that they're putting this in black and white, they're presenting Giannis Milogiannis's art in black and white is doing him a lot of favors because frankly, the future state book that we had seen previously, uh, the work that he did, we didn't feel it was up, up to par when it was colored. This is still better, not colored. It's still better as black and white, but I, I don't know the, the art in this one I felt was a step down. It wasn't as, it just wasn't as good, frankly. 
the backgrounds I felt were almost non-existent. Uh, very few panels had had backgrounds. Um, the story, uh, I'm, I'm quickly, quickly losing all interest in this. Um, it just felt very tropey. Uh, we have Red Hood, Jason Todd, who supposedly is working undercover as uh, Peacekeeper Red. Um, and Bruce Wayne is the only one that knows and, and the other Bat family doesn't, which, again, a super tropey. Uh, I'm not a fan of those kind of things where you're building a dramatic tension and problems in relationships because one person's keeping a secret from other people when there's no reason for it. Basically, Bruce is saying he doesn't trust the rest of the Bat family. He's not going to tell Nightwing or Tim Drake or anybody else that, that Jason Todd is actually working for him. Um, it just doesn't make sense. And I didn't really, and, and I think the whole point of this issue is let's get some interplay. Let's get some interaction between Red Hood and the new uh, Batman, Jace Fox. Well, their relationship and the way they interact was super tropey as well. Um, they should both know they're on the same side, um, you know, despite whatever undercover Red Hood is uh, trying to portray. Um, but it feels more like they're in competition with, with each other. Um, and I don't know. It just, again, it felt it felt super tropey. Um, so I'm not a fan. I'm struggling with it, with this book. Um I think I read it, I want to say like second out of the nine or 10 books. And it, I had to take a break after I read it. Uh, I had to just get away from reading it. And that's not what, a, that's definitely as a publishing company, that's not what you want one of your comics to do. Uh, well, I read this comic that made me not want to read the next comic. Um, so yeah, I, I didn't care for it. What I, what I did like, um, I thought that the, the character design pages were pretty cool, uh, especially the one by Dan Mora of Harley Quinn. Uh, but, you know, Dan Mora is a fantastic artist. So um, anyway, uh, I'll let you talk about the main story and then I'll, I'll I don't have much to say about the backup. But uh, what do you think of the main story, Rock? I got the same criticisms. I, I'm going to start off by saying this, uh, that uh, I there's been some talk lately. Well, it's been an ongoing talk for for years, but. Lately, there's been more talk about, you know, is manga, you know, manga sales outselling American comic books? And, you know, what's the future of American comic books and comic book sales, manga versus American comic book sales and, and what have you. And I got to tell you, if I didn't know better, I would think that this was DC's way of putting out something that looked like manga, but was so awful. Uh, that this was the, this is the way to turn America, you know, if, the, if this... If this is what American comic books are going to look like if if they go manga, um, good Lord. I mean, yeah, definitely count me out. I mean, uh, I, I'm just – this isn't my cup of tea. This isn't my cup of tea. And you know what? Even artistically, it's not even that bad. I mean, I just th – this whole thing with Future State, this entire story – if there was one aspect of the future state of, of Gotham, this this would have been the part of the story that was like, I think, five years in the future. So I, I don't really understand what the point of all this is. This is the one part that doesn't even... I don't even understand how this particular aspect of the story is going to follow from what's happening in, in Batman and Detective Comics. In order for this to, to play out, I, I... I don't know. It's just... This this was a huge mistake. This was this was really a bad. This was this this. It's if this was a movie, I'd say this is the stuff that should have stayed on the cutting room floor. 
I mean, this is just, you know, you asked me to comment on the story. I mean, the story, I just don't care about the story. I, I just, I, I, I read it once and I wasn't really too sure what's happening. Punchline showed up. That was, I thought, I thought she's supposed to be in jail or I guess, I guess she's out of jail. I, I don't really have much to say. I'm not, and I hate to say that, but you know what? Um, when I was listening to a Joshua Williamson interview the other day, I mean, he, he contradicted himself on answers in terms of what was going to happen with uh, uh, Infinite Front Frontier, with uh, DC's Infinite Frontier. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he would say they had a plan and then he would suggest, but then they can do whatever they want. Then he'd say they'd have a plan that he'd imply that they can do whatever they want. So basically, uh, he doesn't really have much of an answer. So since he wrote this, I won't give much of a review, and I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, and I think Dennis Culver will probably take it over himself at at some point. Uh, and I've read good things from Joshua before. I've read good things from Dennis before, but this is not this is not them. And as far as you know, putting it out in black and white and and going with this aesthetic, I think it could work. Um, you know, even with kind of the rougher art, even with the light backgrounds, if you have a good story. And if you don't have a good story, then you better have some damn good art to keep me picking it up and saying, well, maybe the story will get better. At least I have good art to look at. This has neither a compelling story nor good art. So you're, you know, you got two strikes on you. Uh, and I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm I just can't say, recommend this. I, I could not recommend no, this to I, anyone. I just no. couldn't. The price point's too high and. It's it's black and white, man. And uh, you know, if you, if you want black and white, buy manga, buy real manga. <laughs> it's cheaper, and you get more pages, and you get a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. Yeah, I agree, hundred percent. The fact that it's black and white and it's not at a discount, uh, and 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 the other thing that I know that I noticed, and again, I know this is personal taste. I thought both the covers on this issue were pretty poor as well. Um, I mean, one of them, the the main one, super blurry to me. Um, and not very exciting. And the other one, I thought the perspective on it was all jacked up. Nightwing's face, I, it, it, I don't. It looks like he. It doesn't even look like he has a face. It looks like it's an egg with a domino mask on it. Yeah, like what's, I. Like, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Wrong, what is wrong with Nightwing's face there? Like, oh my god. Uh, yeah, the backup. The backup was fun, um, but certainly not worth the price of admission. Basically, uh, it, it's a. A group of uh, cat burglars, I guess you'd say, uh, who are running, or, or actually, I guess it's just one. Now that I look a little more closely, um, they had him in in like kind of multiple exposure as he leaves the Bank of Gotham, doing some flips and running through the alley. And there's uh, Batman's kind of bat symbol shining down and and scaring him, so that he thinks Batman is. Uh, after him and then come to find out it's just Harley who's holding a, a flashlight that, that projects the bat symbol. And mm. by using that, she manages to take out the guy. And then at the last second, uh, Batman is actually there. So it, it was fun. I, I thought the artwork, even though it was black and white is just leaps and bounds better than the artwork we got in the main story. But again, it's do I need this story? No. Would my life have been changed even one iota, if I'd never read it, no. Uh, and like Rocky said, I, I can't possibly recommend, hey, this backup story is so fun with Harley Quinn. It's a must-read for every Harley Quinn fan, so go and pick it up. Uh, because the other thing I should say is it's somewhat as, of a silent silent issue. Nobody actually talks. Um, 
So maybe it was one that was going to end up in Batman black and white and they didn't have enough room. So they stuck it in here. Um, so it, it was, it was, you know, it was cool for what it was. It was better than the main story, but, yeah. uh, I, I agree. Yeah. It was, it, it was actually, it would make a great Batman black and white, you know? And, and I like, I, I, I'm a sucker for the old original Harley Quinn costume. So I really like that. You know, I, I like that Harley, that actual Harley Quinn costume. So it's actually, it looks pretty, it looks pretty good. It was, it was yeah, very I, good, good art. Yeah, but I would never tell somebody, oh yeah, it's, this backup <laughs> is so great. Go spend $5 on Future State yeah. Gotham. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, no, 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 no. Uh, anyway, on to Detective Comics number 1039. This is written by Mariko Tamaki. We still have Victor Bogdanovic filling in on pencils for Dan Mora. Uh, which I, which is fine. I've talked about uh, how much I love Vic's pencils in the past, despite the giant gun in the back of the limousine last uh, last issue. But I, I would be lying if I didn't say I'm I'm looking forward to having Dan come back on the next art because his art is just uh, fantastic. Uh, we've got several people handling the inks. Vic inks himself on some pages. Also, Daniel Enriquez and Norm Ratman give him a hand. Jordi Belair's on colors. Aditya Bidikar handles the letters. And then the, there is no backup in this in this issue, so everything that we get is is what we get in the in the main story. Which I was I was kind of curious. I mean, are, are we going to get? Because again, this wasn't at a discount or anything. So are we gonna get just a longer story? Are we not gonna get? Oh, you know what? <laughs> As I'm flipping through, I take that back. There is a backup. Uh, how could I have forgotten? Uh, it ties in very closely with the main story, which is why I didn't even realize there was a backup. Uh, and basically the backup is the origin of Hugh Vile, yeah. who is, um, has been the big bad. And we, we learn a lot more about Hugh Vile in this one. And it's by writer-artist T-Rex. Uh, and the colors are by Simon Gow with letters by Rob Lee. Um, and we'll, we'll talk more in detail about the, the backup at first. Uh, let's talk about the main story uh, because, yeah, like I said, it's finally, I mean, we sort of have known who the bad guy has been all this time, but we really sort of dive into exactly how menacing he is. And I, I don't know, is this Mariko Tamaki's swing at creating a, like a, a adding to Batman's <laughs> rogues gallery? Um, so, yeah, so. we'll get Rocky's take first and then I'll I'll give my thoughts. Well, uh, this issue actually, this issue just really, she hits the ground uh, running on this issue. All of a sudden, boom, we're introduced with the with the villain who not only, we, we're introduced to this villain who is also narrating the story. And right away, he acknowledges that he's the murderer of Sarah Worth. He's the guy that killed Sarah Worth. Uh, that and of course, Mister Worth, her father, the mob boss. There, you know, he's he's after Batman, and he he uses he fires a bazooka into a. <laughs> he gets Bruce Wayne arrested and questioned about being a possible suspect in in his daughter's murder, and then he uses a bazooka to blow the building up. And so, Mister Worth is going after uh, Bruce Wayne, and then Batman's fighting Mister Worth, and and meanwhile, suddenly now it's revealed that this Hugh Vile, this new character that we pretty much, uh, you know, we we've. We're meeting him for the first time here. I think we probably had some hidden cameos in earlier issues, but yeah, this this is this this Hugh Vile, and 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 I I gotta give I'll I'm gonna give Marika Tamaki some credit here. This is actually an interesting interesting villain. You know, we there you know uh, 
and of course we we do in the backup as you said uh, we do get a we do get an origin for Juvile. and uh, he's a, he's a he's a when he was a young kid he got a he got a foreign fungal infection in his body and it's sort of like it was it was almost like a, an alien species was living in his stomach and doctors tried to take it out but it's surgical they tried to take it out surgically but they couldn't it literally became part of him and it basically. Um, it's allergic to light, so it's almost like a. It's almost vampiric. Uh, so he's almost like a vampire. This, he, you know, he it doesn't like UV light, and uh, but this parasite sort of gives him an urge to be violent. And anyone that he sort of bites with, it, it does this horrible thing with his mouth, and, and it becomes parasitic. And anyone that he bites becomes almost like a a living. A killer, like, but almost in a zombie-like, but they're not dead, and and that's essentially what's been happening all around Gotham. And you know, this is you know, I- interesting issue. This was uh, you know, Mister Worth, you know, this this crazy guy. I mean, that he he he's still insistent that he he, he wants to take out that man. Uh, meanwhile, this Hugh Vile is you know he. You know, there, there's no evidence against him because he infects people and that he creates a cycle where all of his victims become the become the, the criminals, become the killers. And that's exactly uh, what makes him uh, so deadly. And ultimately, he ends up infecting the Huntress. And, uh, you know, fortunately for, uh, for, for the Huntress... Uh, as she, the huntress, uh, in when she she found out through Oracle that you know using UV light can uh, have an adverse effect on 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 the creature or, or on the infection, and uh, she manages to have the wherewithal to tell Batman as the huntress attacks Batman when she's possessed or I guess overridden by this thing, infected by this thing. Batman, uh, you know, shines light on her and incapacitates her. And oh, but unfortunately, ultimately, Hugh Vile does escape, and uh, to basically be a villain for another day. But uh, you know, I like this artistically. Bogdanovich does a does a good job. Uh, I thought Huntress was. Uh, I mean, the, some of the art here, the fighting scenes were excellent. I mean, the you know, again, it's just this was just beautifully rendered. Lines are great, coloring is great. Um, I love the, you know, the, there's a, a, a great action sequence with uh, Huntress and Batman and with uh, Hugh Vile looking on. And yeah, I mean, it, it was good. I got to give, I, I'll give Tamaki some, uh, some credit here. I, I do think this wraps, wraps things up a little bit too conveniently. I mean, this was like, like I said, all of a sudden, out of the blue, this wasn't really much of a mystery. It was just out of the blue. Oh, boom, look, here's the villain. <laughs> Here, it, I did it. It's like, I, if I didn't know better, it's like she had to wrap this up quickly. And, uh, you know, because she didn't want to drag this out. And because I thought this was going to be a little bit more of a sophisticated mystery, but it really wasn't. This was almost like wrapped up in a single issue in terms of, you know, what, what's been going on. I mean, all that all that back work with Bruce Wayne being a suspect and, and the neighborhood and getting to know the neighborhood and all these potential suspects and everything else. And all of a sudden, it's just... Just all of a sudden, boom! It's Huval, and uh, he's got a background. We get we get it all in the uh, backstories, and uh, but you know, uh, but again, it's this uh, this this makes for a nice story. This this wraps it up nice, 
and the, the neighborhood, the previous Arc neighborhood, wrapping it up this way. And all the backstories have to do with the main one. I mean, the previous backstories had to do with some of the victims, with the hunter's friends who was killed, and, and now this backstory being the origin of the villain. This does, this does have a nice, this is going to sell well in trade, and I think it's going to read well. And so it's a nice, it's a nice package. So overall, you know, I'd, uh, you know, if I had to give it something out of 10, I'd get, I'd probably give it a good strong six and a half, seven out of 10. Yeah, I, I, I sort of agree with you. We certainly saw Hugh Vile before this, uh, but, but you're right in that it wasn't clear that he was the one that was, uh, you know, infecting people. And you know, we knew he was a bad guy. We knew he was working in the mayor's office. We'd seen him show up before. Um, but it wasn't a hundred percent clear that he was the one that, that killed Sarah or was causing this and, and the violence and whatnot and the, and the parasite parasitic infections. And now we come to find out not he's doing both, right? Like he's causing the parasitic in, infections and he's sort of behind a lot of the violence because the people that are infected are a lot of the ones that are causing the, the violence. And so it was sort of a, an abrupt reveal. I, I agree with you. And then we, there's a lot of exposition in this, uh, issue. There's a lot of information that you have to pay close attention when you're reading what Oracle says, because she's the one that's sort of explaining exactly what's going on. We do get a, a little bit of the origin of Hugh Vile in the main story, and then it gets fleshed out more in the, in the backstory. Uh, and I, I mean, I, in a way I felt that the end, you know, I was disappointed that we didn't get resolution really because Hugh Vile does escape. But then at the same time, if, if it's going to continue and even though this is the end of the arc, it's not really the end of the story, but is that going to be the case or not? Because they do know how to cure somebody or how to treat them. Maybe it's not a cure, but they know how to treat them if they are exposed to this, uh, these parasites or what have you, you know, um, Hey, let's get them some, some ultraviolet light. And, uh, there's some other chemicals that they they can give to the people. Uh, Oracle calls it a, a pretty toxic cocktail. Um, and even though uh, Huntress is infected, she's in a chemical coma because it's that's what's necessary uh, in order to rid the, her body of these uh, these parasites. So uh, I, I did appreciate that, but yeah, it, it felt a little uh, abrupt, like. We've had these hints that Hugh Vile has been behind it and whatnot, and then all of a sudden, now it's he's revealed. Oh, he's 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 one hundred percent behind everything that's been happening, and it's he, you know he's much more central to the story. And if it is Tomaki's way of introducing a new Batman villain that she feels is going to be on par with you know Killer Croc and Riddler and Black Mask and all those guys, it's a little bit of a clumsy attempt. I would have liked to have seen it play out take a little longer maybe the second arc we find out you know you can keep laying hints but again it, it might have been uh, an editorial dictator or who knows uh as far as the art goes uh vic bogdanovic does an incredible job the fight scenes are very dynamic uh have absolutely no problem with any of the line work in this issue uh the only thing that i'll i'll point out art wise that for me didn't quite work uh was the color work and and i say this having given jordi belair my best colors of 2020 she's fantastically talented. Um, but I think because so much of what Hugh Vile does, it's portrayed in greenish tones. You know, the, the monster lives within him when everybody's, whenever anybody is infected and what have you, when he opens his mouth in a, like a predator, predator like way, like it literally looks exactly like the predator with those four 
kind of flaps opening up. Um, yeah. It's always depicted in, in these greenish tones. And so I, I think that's the reason that Jordy then chooses in a lot of the other pages to go with orange tones because those are um, those are two color palettes that contrast against each other very much. And so the rest of the issue is very orange most of the time. And that just kind of bugged me. Like usually when it's Gotham and it's Batman, you're going to see darker colors. It's going to be nighttime. Uh, and so the fact there was so much orange and yellow, which I associate with daytime, didn't really work for me that well. It felt a little jarring uh, at times. But again, I understand why she did it. It's probably to contrast against that that green. So again, it's a minor nitpick. Um, I am very curious to see what's going to happen next. We Apparently Batman's going to turn himself in. He says he, he can't continue. He tells Oracle that he can't continue on the case. He can't move the case forward if the police are hunting both Batman and Bruce Wayne. So he's going to turn himself in. Uh, one of the things that Rocky and I have loved about Detective Comics that we've pointed out several times in the Tamaki run so far is how great it's been to see so much of Bruce Wayne. We don't see any of Bruce at all in this issue. And I'm just worried if Bruce goes and turns himself in that he'll just be sneaking out at night to just be Batman. And all of a sudden we won't be getting any Bruce Wayne. I, I think back to classic errors of uh, eras of Batman in the late seventies and early eighties, where we got a lot of Bruce Wayne and I don't need, mean, mean it needs to be half and half, but I like seeing Bruce Wayne show up. I like seeing him interact. I like seeing him have some agency. Um, yeah. And we didn't, we didn't get any of that here. So, but I, uh, I will but say Bruce Wayne going to jail is a little bit absurd. I mean, the last time he, he, he was in jail in this very story arc and they blew the and Mr. Worth blew the building out. So he, he knows there's corruption in the department that a mobster can buy out. And you think his life would be in danger. I, I, I don't know why he would be so willing to to go back and get himself arrested to go back to jail again. He, I hope obviously he's Batman. I'm sure he's got a plan, but it just seems a rather absurd thing to do unless he's there. He's got something else on the go. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then the backup, the life and times of Hugh vile um, is basically Hugh vile. And apparently this sort of flashes back to when he first came back to Gotham before he got on the mayor's staff. And it, it, it's a pretty good rundown of, of who he is and, how he got to where he is. Um, but it's a little, I mean, I know it's comics and I, you know, everything is far fetched, but it, it's like really, uh, I don't know. I, I just, I didn't find him to be, he's not a villain that I have really much interest in. He, I, I don't know if it's the body horror aspect or what, um, or just this absolutely incredulous. I, I just feel that he would have been caught at some point. Like it's, yeah, there's it's so many, coincidences it's it's pretty far out there so he, he's not a villain you know and again batman has so many great villains you know uh the joker notwithstanding uh but the penguin and the riddler and black mask and killer croc and you know the list goes on and on and on of his interesting villains uh i hope this is a villain that's here and gone to be honest with you because <laughs> in my mind uh if if Tamaki finishes telling her Hugh Vile story and we never see him again. I'm perfectly fine with that. Yeah. It's, a, it's very horrific. This is a, it's this right. Like, like a horror story. I mean, this is a kid that's got an alien. It, it looks like an, almost an alien parasitic infection in his body that the doctors can't get out. And yet they let this kid go back and live with his, his parent, his mom and his, and his brother. And, and he infects his mother and then his mother kills his, his brother. And, and, and then, and then, and then he's goes into a foster home. And like, I mean, I mean, do they not know that, you know, I mean, how, why, 
it's hard to believe that they would let this kid just sort of off into the system and that he wouldn't be, you know, institutionalized and studied or something. It seems very, very hard to believe. But uh, perhaps there's more to the story that we'll learn uh, farther down the line. But it definitely seems, uh, you know, it's 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 an interesting villain, though. I'll, I'll give Tamaki that. I, I think it's, uh, you know, it's it's exactly the type of villain you would expect to originate in Gotham City. <laughs> Yeah, and after his mother is killed and his brother and his father, and then he says, oh, and I, at that point, I got to be careful. I can't do the killing myself. I have to infect other people. Yeah. <laughs> I felt like the cat's already out of the bag, kid. It's already too late. They're already going to be looking at you, especially because you have this strange, never having been seen before disease. Yeah. All it takes is Superman to look. Superman looks at this kid once, looks at or looks at Hugh Vile once and goes, oh, what's that? You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't make it doesn't make much sense. Stands so. out like a sore thumb, I think. It, yeah, if, if he's ever exactly. in Metropolis, anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, all right. Well, sticking with Batman, Batman: Urban Legends number five. We have four stories here. Uh, we have uh, Red Hood and Batman in Sheer, part five of six. So this is the penultimate part of that story by writer Chip Zdarsky. Eddie Barrows handles the pencils. Eber Ferreira and uh, Diogenes Neves listed as artist. Marcus Toad does the flashback art. Adriana Lucas on colors. Becca Carey on letters. There's a Batgirl one-shot written by Marguerite Bennett. The art is by Sweeney Boo. The colors are by Marissa Louise, and the letters are also by Becca Carey. Then there's Tim Drake in Some of Our Parts, Part 2 of 3, written by Megan Fitzmartin. Bellin Ortega handles the art. Alejandro Sanchez on colors and Pat Brousseau on letters. And then the final part of the grifter story from uh, Matthew Rosenberg, the long con part five of five, Ryan Benjamin handles the art, Antonio Fabella on colors, Seda Temofonti on letters. And I'll just remind everybody. I mean, if you've been listening this far, you know, we get spoilery, but when we get to that grifter story, we're going to get really spoilery. There are things in that story that happen at the end that are huge spoilers for the future of the DC universe. So if you don't want it to be spoiled, go read, go read it before we get to uh, the Grifter Long Con. And uh, I even saw Matthew Rosenberg, I think on Friday or Saturday, put that out on on Twitter. Like Batman Urban Legends, huge spoilers. You know it's going to be spoiled. So read it, uh, read it sooner than later. Um, so yeah, the next to last part of the the cheer story. Uh, what did you think, Rocky? Uh, more of the same, yeah, and I mean that in a, in all the best ways. I, um, it, we finally got to know. We we finally got some more information on this. Uh, this I guess Mister Cheer or he, you know Cheer. What is he? Cheer Drop or Mister Cheer? I think they just call him Cheer. Just call him Cheer. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, Cheer. Yeah. Cheer Drops is the drug. You know, drops. Right. That, that Cheer has created. But yeah, right. I think he just calls himself Cheer. Yeah, uh, he's it's a, that clown face and very happy. Yeah, visually, he's a fantastic-looking character with the sort of like the yellow face with the black lips and the black makeup around the eyes and the and the and the yellow and black, uh, you know, jacket with the with the smiley face on the painted in sort of like an orangish yellow on the jacket. It's a vi- visually a very compelling character. Uh, this was a. Uh, I mean, again, this this was action packed. Again, uh, we we got we got some back. I was very interested in the in the backstory of Cheer, uh, and he's uh, he ends up 
I was interested in it, um, and I'm a little disappointed in it in because he's just, he's actually just riding the, on the coattails of his wife. <laughs> he didn't create <laughs> tear. I mean, basically, it's his wife that did all the work, and she's actually, she's a nice person. He's just taken advantage. It was his wife, Dr. Romero, who was, uh, actually created the scarecrow gas, uh, scarecrow fear gas, and she also ended up creating this, this cheer drop drug, which cheers the one, which is, uh, you know, using it to his advantage and, and, and selling it and taking advantage of it. And he's using it to control Mr. Uh, Mr. Freeze. And of course, uh, Mr. Freeze is, use, you know, using his thing to uh, incapacitate Batman and, and try to take out uh, uh, Jason Todd. Meanwhile, Jason Todd is, is, is looking, is trying to rescue Batman because Mr. F you know, Cheer, who has... Mr. Freeze under the, his control with the the cheer drop drug is has taken Batman in, into a, a into hiding and Jason has to find them and and just as um, just as he's done in the past uh, uh, Chip Sardaski has has does a really good job writing a past story of a young Jason Todd trying to rescue Batman. So as, as an older Jason Todd is trying to find Batman to rescue Batman from cheer and Mr. Freeze, he's reflecting back on him as a younger Jason Todd Robin trying to save Batman from a scheme of the Riddler. And it's, it's, you know, uh, Chip Sardaski, once again, he does a good job showing Jason's Jason Todd's insecurity that he's had ever since he was younger about not feeling good enough, not being not feeling good enough as a Robin and even not even feeling good enough to measure up to Batman standard standards as an adult, uh, as as Jason Todd, as the Red Hood himself. And uh, I, I thought it was very well done. I thought the riddle w was kind of interesting. I I, I like the fact that Jason Todd uh, went and went, you know, and, and actually, you know, took off the mask and uh, and ended up interviewing a Dr. Romero, finding information out about her husband who ended up being the cheer and utilizing that information. Uh, you could you could see him use doing the being the detective. You could see he's putting all the stuff that he learned from Batman over the years and you could see his confidence slowly growing and and just the juxtaposition of, of the past of a young Jason Todd figuring out the riddle, saving Batman, Batman telling a young Jason Todd, I always knew you could do it. I had faith in you. And of course, in the few the present day story with Jason Todd, of course, ultimately locating uh, locating Batman, Batman himself knows that Mr. Freeze is under the influence of the cheer drug. And tries to use that to his advantage, uh, but Cheers uh, is is one step ahead of Batman and uh, won't let that happen. But my my favorite aspect visually is there's a there's a beautiful the the pages where where Mister Freeze is talking to Batman and Batman is talking to Mister Freeze trying to talk trying to talk Mister Freeze out of his influence over of. The, the cheer influence over him. And then when cheer shows up, the color scheme of the blue and the yellow and the black, it just looks beautiful on the page. Uh, you know, kudos to the colorist. Is, is this Jordi Belair? Who's the colorist on this? No, it's, it's Adriana Lucas. Adriana Lucas. She does a fantastic job here. This just, it's just absolutely. He, he, yeah, he does. 
Yeah. Oh, is it he? <laughs> yeah. I didn't know. Yeah. Adri- Adriano. He remember he's the one that did the color work. Um, I mean, it's this team works together a lot. Eddie Barrows with uh, Ibar Ferrer as his inker, and then Adriano Lucas as the color artist. That's the same art team from Freedom Fighters. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 Good. Well, hey, man, it's it, it's it's gorgeous. It really is gorgeous. And again, the. It, the way that the the way Chip Sardaski goes back and forth between the past and the present, and you know, just a great scheme. You, you this is such a great Jason Todd story. Th- this cheer drop storyline is such a great J- Jason Todd story. And yeah, I mean, uh, even the way he solves the riddle. I mean, it, it was it was just so well done. And you know, just a Batman being proud of him. I mean, Jason Todd is a killer. I mean, what we know about Jason Todd now, especially, you know, with Jeff Johns, uh, you know, with his uh, three Jokers there, which is a pretty, uh, pretty epic uh, Jason Todd uh, story. Uh, yet we're still ge- we're still learning more about Jason Todd uh, in-, in this story that uh, is not even inconsistent with that one. But it's just it's impressive. I I quite enjoy it. And and it's just j- j- and I like. I like how Batman is captured and it's Jason Todd doing all the detective work. It's This is really a Jason Todd story. Batman, even though he's active in the story, he really is an ancillary character. This really is all about Jason Todd. And and it works so well. So uh, what do you think about it? Yeah, so it's interesting that you bring up Three Jokers. I thought maybe I was the only one that was going to bring that up in terms of Three Jokers is basically a Jason Todd story. At least I felt like it was. And this certainly is a Jason Todd story. And I love Jeff Johns. I think Jeff Johns is an incredible writer. I think he's a really great guy. He's always been super nice to me anytime I've talked to him and a a huge comic fan. All that being said, this is a better Jason Todd story than Three Jokers. And it's not close. Um, The layers that Chip Zdarsky brings to this story are just fascinating to me. You know, it, it, when you think how far this story has come in five issues, you know, it started off and Jason killed the little boy's father. Uh, the mother's in the coma from cheer drops. And, you know, we saw that at the end of the first issue. And you thought, you know, to your point, Jason Todd is a killer. And it's going to be that idea of this angsty Jason Todd. And what's he going to do having killed this boy's father? Is he going to have to take the boy in? Like, where's the story going? And, you know, just the emotion that... Zdarsky brought to the story of, of clearly Jason Todd seen himself in this young boy whose mother was a junkie and whose father was a criminal, you know, and, and he didn't want that boy to suffer the way that he suffered. Um, and so from starting off with those very kind of taut emotions and thinking we're going to get one kind of story and then having it morph and continuing to add these layers uh, and explore the fact that Jason Todd doesn't have confidence in himself. Like Rocky was saying, he, despite the fact that Bruce Wayne, Batman, his father, his the only real father figure he's ever had, maybe with the exception of Alfred, um, always did believe in him, but Jason not having the self worth to see that. Um, and we do get these flashbacks with some gorgeous art by Marcus toe, which reminds us that, Hey, Bruce Wayne chose Jason Todd for a reason. I mean, Jason Todd Robin, and I'm as guilty of it as the next guy. I didn't care for him as Robin. He was kind of, he was, he wasn't very likable. Um, And he was kind of whiny all the time. And so 
And I don't know for whatever reason, but his character just didn't work. Maybe it was, you know, it's like trying to follow the Beatles, right? Like you're, he was trying to follow Dick Grayson, the beloved Robin uh, and, and favorite character of many people, many DC fans to this day. And so whoever was going to follow him was going to get a bum rap. Uh, and maybe that made things easier for Tim Drake because he was following a Robin that people voted to kill. Um, but obviously DC has, has brought him back. But these flashbacks are a great reminder. Seeing him solve that riddle, seeing him not give up, they are a great reminder that Batman chose him for a reason. He is a smart guy. He is uh, capable of being a Robin. And, you know, maybe that career got cut short, right or wrong. I mean, we're talking less than, I think it was like, wasn't it eight votes or something ridiculous? I mean, he yeah. just as easily could have lived. You wonder how DC history, comic book history, would, how different it would be if Jason Todd hadn't been killed by the Joker and had actually survived. Uh, but again, going back to this idea of layers, we see... Jason Todd as Robin back in the day solved this riddle and now we're seeing him take off his mask and become a detective and like you said open up to uh, Cheer's wife uh, to try to get more information about what's going on um, and again it's showing us that hey he's more than just this meathead that goes around killing people with his guns he is capable he is a detective and so He's actually finally, maybe for the first time, looking at himself in a more realistic way and going back and thinking about some of the conversations we've seen him have with Bruce Wayne in this uh, story previously about asking for help and doing things the right way, as opposed to, and I think that's in contrast, to what Cheer is doing, right? Like you mentioned it yourself. Here he has this uh, incredible wife who he has a lot in common with. They're both chemists. They're both scientists. And rather than going to her and saying, yeah, um, I have these feelings of inadequacy because you came up with this, you know, incredible formula. And, and I get it. Like the scarecrow's fear toxin isn't something that's, you know, a good thing in the world. But regardless of that, in order to create that, it's, it's a brilliant feat of science. It's a brilliant feat of chemistry. And she was able to do that. And her husband, Cheer, being from that same world of chemistry understands what a genius feat it is. And so rather than going to her and saying, Hey, let's work together. Let's, you know, let's figure something out. Instead, he takes his feelings of inadequacy, goes behind her back, takes her formula, manipulates it and turns it into cheer drops and is using it to do what, to boost himself up, to have some feeling of self-worth. So it's almost like these two characters, red hood and cheer are opposite sides of the same coin. Maybe through the influence, maybe that's what Zdarsky's trying to do, right? He's showing that through the positive influence of Batman and Bruce Wayne's love and looking after of, of Jason Todd and the fact that Bruce Wayne believed in him and still tries to believe in him and doesn't want to give up on him, that that is allowing Jason to, to grow and, can, and start to make some right choices as opposed to Cheerdrops who's clearly fallen off the cliff, right? He, he hasn't reached out for help. He's, he tried to do something on his own and he's turned himself into a supervillain for lack of a better term. I mean, the layers and the complexity of this story is it's astounding to me. Um, so I, I like reading this red hood story and this Batman story m makes me hope that Chip Zdarsky has more Batman family stories. Uh, because again, we're talking Jeff Johns, who's a legend as a DC writer. And I don't think he's ever done something this 
complex with with Jason Todd or with Batman, at least not that I've read. Uh, I know he's got his his Earth One stuff, and that's its own kind of thing, and it's it's great, and and, and I love it. But this is something that's completely out of left field for me and completely unexpected. Yeah. Um, I mean, Zardar, I, and and I don't mean unexpected because I'm, I think Chip Zdarsky is not a talented writer. I think he's probably one of the best two or three writers working in comics today, which. A couple of years ago, I, I did not think that at all. That's on me um, just for being kind of short-sighted on things. Um, but he's, he, you know, he, he just hadn't done a lot of DC work. So maybe I shouldn't have underestimated Chip, but this is, this is just a master class. Like this issue, I mean, don't get me wrong. I have loved this cheer drop story all along. But for me, this issue has just catapulted it to another level. Um, yeah. I, I think it's just one of the best stories I've Batman stories I've read in a long, long time. So, well, yeah, and it's, it's not over yet, and uh, it's going to make a it's oh, yeah. going to make a hell of a it's going to make a hell of a trade, and it's going to that you know I think the cheer it's it could possibly be a, a end up being a classic Jason Todd story, no question. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised to see this nominated for some awards. I mean, I think it's that good. Yeah. No, so, anyway, uh, next story is called Wild Card from writer Marguerite Bennett. Sweeney Boo is the artist. Marissa Louise on colors. Becca Carey on letters. It's Cassandra Kane and Spoiler. They're hanging out in what used to be Wayne Manor playing some video games, and they get a call from uh, from Oracle, from Batgirl, and supposedly she's on this case, and she calls it the red calling card case, but they always turn to Ash whenever she tries to touch him, and she's been on this case for uh, – a long time and so you know apparently this one's in the future also future state type setting of story and they go to this convention center in gotham city that's all torn apart and the last time that anything was there was the international virtual reality gaming championship and they end up running into ryan wilder there who leaves them a bunch of clues about this computer programmer who was attending the convention from china and was trying to ask for asylum um, but then apparently was was killed, and so apparently this these uh, red cards that are being lay, left laying around are being left as sort of clues to the Bat family to say, hey, there's a crime that took place here. Uh, I'm going to leave you all the clues and all the evidence that you need to solve the crime, but the calling card itself, that red calling card, is going to go up in flame, um, so you can't track me down. Now we know that Ryan Wilder eventually becomes Batwoman. Um, you know, based on the TV show and, and what we, things that we've heard. Um, but this felt like a little bit, I mean, it just felt like, okay, we haven't had a Ryan Wilder sighting since Batgirl 50 that uh, Cecil Castellucci wrote. It's time for us to have a bat or a, a bat world, a bat woman. I think I said Batgirl. We haven't had a bat woman sighting since uh, Batgirl 50 when Ryan Wilder was there. We still haven't had her show up in a comic in, her, in the actual Batwoman costume yet. Still Kate Keen. Um, so it almost feels like, DC said, DC editorial said, well, we haven't had Ryan Wilder Batwoman show up in a while. We need to throw in her story. Because um, it just didn't really seem to be much here. It, it, it felt like long on potential, but kind of short on delivery. Um, that being said, I thought the art was fine. And I thought the interaction, I really liked the interaction between Spoiler and Cassandra Kane Batgirl. Um, and I know there's been a lot of debate lately about uh, Barbara Gordon as Oracle or should she be Oracle in the chair? Should she be Batgirl? Uh, and people were giving Tom Taylor a lot of crap online about it because of uh, Batgirl. Get, she's going to be getting a new costume, the Barbara Girl Bat, 
Barbara Gordon Batgirl is going to be getting a new Batgirl costume in the pages of Nightwing. And people were yelling at Tom Taylor saying he's practicing ableism and he's disrespecting disabled people by putting her back in the costume. Like he doesn't own the character. Number one, (laughs) number two, she's been Barbara Gordon has been back to being Batgirl and been out of the chair for over 10 years now. Right. So this is not something new. So I didn't understand why people were yelling at Tom Taylor. So stop doing that people. So anyway, back, back to the story. What did you think, Rocky? Did you like it better than me? Uh, I didn't mind it. Uh, let me just, uh, I got to confess something. I, I have no idea. I'd never heard of Ryan Wilder. I know I don't watch the Batwoman show. Never paid any attention. I had no idea the woman on Batwoman is called Ryan Wilder. I read this story and I had, there's no indication in this story that this is going to be a future Batwoman unless I missed something. I, I thought this new character was called Wildcard. That's what I thought because I at the end she says it, she says uh, she expo- who is this woman and then Oracle says a wild card and she says it in quotations so I assumed that was her name and then I assumed her first name was Ryan because it, it says Ryan was here spray painted on the back so I, I, I that's <laughs> I thought again I just I thought this was her name is Wild Card and her name is Ryan so it's interesting when you say that. Uh, you know, she might be Batwoman. That's cool. That's cool. Uh, that that explains a lot of her skills. Uh, she's got a skill set here. She she uh, she ended up uh, ended up in a physical altercation in this storyline with uh, with uh, Cassandra Kane and uh, Stephanie Brown, and she didn't want to hurt them. She's obviously just leaving clues. She's clearly a good person. She's a good citizen. She's sort of almost like a good citizen vigilante. She's in the right city for it, Gotham City. And uh, at some point, one has to wonder because the questions that we talked about earlier, one of the questions is uh, of the Infinite Frontier is what is the team that Oracle is putting together? That's one of the questions. And is it possible that this Ryan Wilder uh, wildcard slash Batwoman, <laughs> is she going to be on Oracle's new team? One, it may, perhaps she will, along with, I'm imagining, Cassandra Kane and Stephanie Brown. But I, I I didn't I didn't mind it I didn't mind this I actually like the uh, I love the artist um, Boo Pickaboo <laughs> I uh, I yeah I yeah I I like this it, this was this was a fun this was a fun story I liked it and and we'll see we'll and I'm looking forward to seeing more of this uh, wild card now and uh, especially if she's going to be Batwoman hopefully she'll be more interesting than the uh, CW version. Yeah, I, I one hundred and and it's so interesting, right? So for those not familiar, uh, there was the original actress. I can't remember what her name is. Uh, that was Kessa's Kate Kane, uh, and I, she's European or Australian or from New Zealand or something like that. Anyway, uh, she left after season one, and so they recast with a, a person mm-hmm. of color. Um, and so, and and kudos to them for not just, you know canceling the show or whatever. And I don't know why the first girl didn't want to do it anymore. And it, and it doesn't matter. But what DC did was they said, okay, rather than um, ignoring it, we're going to, we're going to introduce the character of, of Ryan Wilder in the, into the comic universe as well. So she showed up and Barbara Gordon knows her uh, from her neighborhood. She was kind of a, a girl that would hang out in the neighborhood, li- lived in her van basically. Uh, and so she did show up. Her first appearance is in Batgirl 50, which is the final um, issue of the latest volume of, of Batgirl. Um, 
And then obviously when the second season of Batwoman started on the CW, Ryan Wilder is Batwoman. So I fully expect to see Ryan Wilder make her debut as Batwoman based on the fact that she just showed up in this story. I fully expect her to make her debut in the Batwoman costume, probably in the pages of uh, Fear State, the the Batman event that's coming up later this year. Now, what I don't know is what are they going to do with Kate Kane? Are they going to have her incapacitated? Are they going to... I think they should send her to Europe or something, honestly. Like, don't do the whole, oh, she's retiring or she's too old or she got hurt. Just send her off to fight crime overseas um, and we'll get Ryan. Well, that's what that's kind of what I expect. So I guess we'll we'll have to wait and see if that plays out. Yeah. Uh, all right. Next story is Tim Drake and some of our partners. Chapter two, like I mentioned earlier, Megan Fitzsimmons is a writer. Bella and Ortega on art. Alejandro Sanchez on colors. Pat Brousseau on letters. Uh, Megan Fitzsimmons continues to show her love for uh, for Tim Drake here. What did you think? Uh, I this story is. Um just so underwhelming to me but uh i just <laughs> I, I oh man i gotta watch how i say this 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 entire story it seems very very forced and geared toward apparently the apparently stephanie brown who her her and tim drake recently broke up she thinks that tim's acting strange uh, apparently she thinks he's acting strange because he's staying up late and he's investigating a kidnapping of uh, one of his friends. I don't know since when is that strange behavior for a member of the Bat family. They do that all the time. They stay up late and they investigate and they fight crime. Why, you know, Connor Connor Kent ends up calling or Connor, uh, Tim Drake's friends calls. I, I heard you're acting strange. Uh, really? This, uh, how was Tim Drake acting strange? And of course... We're supposed to believe he's acting strange, apparently because he's investigating and he's looking for Bernard. Why is he acting strange? And then, and then Tim Drake is talking about how you know at at one point he talks about how he's got to. Uh, 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 he's I need I need to figure out what I want. What I want, he says, and that, that's uh, you know who I am. Who am I if if I am not Robin? I need to figure out who uh, what I want. Well, I think it's fair to say that clearly they're moving toward him wanting Bernard. That's why he's fascinated with Bernard because because suddenly he's gay. Uh but uh and he's just realized this now and this is really a storyline to get him to realize that what he wants is Bernard. Uh that's maybe why he broke up with uh with uh Stephanie Brown. Anyways, um it's just really I just think this is really weird, uh, and then it's kind of a cult, and it's it's just a strange. I don't know. It it just never worked for me. I I just. But you know what? Honestly, if if I'm on it, like this whole thing is, you know, again, this is a story that's probably not. Obviously, it's not written for me. I just this just feels forced to me. I just I I I wasn't really into this story. It just seems really uh, seems really odd. And then he's going. He's kind of going undercover and then in into this group. He's trying to infiltrate it. And um yeah, I just I don't know. It just this is this seems like such a complicated like we're supposed to feel so sorry for Tim Drake because he's really struggling because he you know he's not Rob and he's not this, he's that. And apparently now he's he's all screwed up because apparently he didn't realize he was gay for, for his whole life and 
And uh, you know, look how woke this story is. And, you know, it, this is going to connect with a lot of people. All the power to you. You know, again, not taking nothing away, but it really does nothing for me. Just it just did nothing for me, and it really took me right out of the story because I mean, I mean, all this. I mean, there's this page here, and I for those watching, I'm showing it. He's there's so there's there's exposition here where he's. It's supposed to be introspection, and it conveys nothing of substance. He 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 talks about how he's feeling and it, it just doesn't convey anything of substance. It doesn't move the story forward. And it just, it just doesn't work for me. It, this does not work to, 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 to compare this to Alan Scott, Alan Scott coming out as gay after, you know, how many, you know, 40 years ago, that actually felt like it, that actually felt like it wasn't forced. That actually felt like it was good. It had, it, 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 it just felt more real. This just feels like this just doesn't work for me. It just, uh, I don't buy it. Narratively, I just don't buy it. And, uh, you know, maybe it'll work for some people. I mean, hey, you got so many Robins. I'm sure one of them has to be gay, right? Um, so, you know, let's pick Tim. Why? Because we're not really using him for anything. And, hey, look, we got this character named Bernard. His, his name's Bernard. You know, how many, how many, <laughs> never mind, I'll stop. <laughs> I was going to say something. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't know what the hell you're talking about, Rocky. You, maybe you read a different comic than me. I did not get the gay thing at all. Not well, in the least bit. I, I think it's happening, man. I, I really, I, I think it's, I, I think that's happening. Well, well, what is he, what is he struggling with? Who am I if I'm he's not struggling Robin? With the, he's struggling with the fact, he's struggling with the fact that ever since he was, what, 11 or 12 years old, he did everything. As soon as he discovered that his next door neighbor was Batman, he did everything he could to become Robin. That was his entire identity all through his formative years. We have talked ad nauseum about how aging John Kent up would not work. He, he didn't get a chance to, you know, have his, his formative years and, you know, how it, it possibly have screwed him up. And you've talked about, you've given um, Philip Kennedy Johnson credit. Hey, at least he's addressing it. It's the same thing here. Here's a kid who's done nothing his whole life except be Robin. You know, from the time he was 12 years old till what he's probably around like 20 now. Well, he, he he didn't have he didn't have a normal childhood. He's only ever had the identity of Robin, and now, in a way, that's been taken away from him, right? Because Damien is Robin, and he's been Red Robin, he's been Drake, he's been all these different identities. But who is he now? He doesn't know who he is now anymore that's what i took it as and i thought yeah. that that page that you didn't like was actually that to tells you everything you need to know yeah. he's like i'm here on this rooftop and what am i doing everybody keeps asking me that you know i, I say i'm here to, to rescue bernard but if that's the case then how come i didn't you know jump at the chance to have detective williams help me how come i didn't ask stephanie to help me how come i didn't ask connor to help me i'm trying to do it all myself because i don't know who i am i'm always robin ever since batman gave me the cowl that's the only identity that I have. It's who I've been. It's, you know, all the important moments of my life. He doesn't know who he is when he takes the masks, yeah. the mask off. And so as far as this cult of pain, he actually can understand. Yeah. He can identify with what Bernard goes through because Bernard is in a, a similar situation in that he doesn't have an identity because his parents are helicopter parents that control everything that he does. They make all the decisions for them. They, d they don't let Bernard make any decisions or have any agency in his own life. 
So Bernard has joined this cult to feel something. What is it? It's a cult of pain. At least he gets to feel pain. And the story opens up where uh, Tim Drake has allowed himself to be captured and he's allowing himself to be beat on with these chains because at least he gets to feel something, something other than I have to be Robin. My identity is Robin. I don't know who I am that, when I'm not Robin. He says it right there. Who am I if I'm not a Robin? Yeah, that's 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 a fundamental misunderstanding of Tim Drake's past, in my, in my view, by this writer. Tim Drake has been the most, by far the most well-adjusted member of the Bat family. He's never been defined by just being Robin. He he. There was a there was a, in fact he even left he even left the Bat family to go off to college to and Batman welcomed it and that that was just before he was he was killed off. And then he came back, but uh, no, he he was the most well adjusted, and in fact, he has a good family life. Tim Drake, he had he had family. I mean, he uh, this is this is this is not a kid who who ever struck me as someone who was screwed up, who didn't know who he was, who was tied up being Robin, who was always obsessed with being Robin. He was I I, I never got that, and I I just. I never got that from the, from that, from, from that, from that at all. And I just, I don't, I don't recognize, I just don't recognize this, uh, this, this Tim Drake. I just, I mean, they're trying, I'm not, I'm not even sure where it's going. So I, well, I guess when he, I guess when he finds Bernard, I guess we'll find out when he, when he, when he rescues yeah, Bernard, we'll how will, that's going to be, but, you know, all yeah, I'm saying is that, out. yeah. No, and, and you know, and and maybe 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 he's not maybe he's not going to be gay. Uh, I I would just be stunned. By the way, when he when he met his parents, you know, I, the reason why his parents never liked Tim, but uh, I th I think his parents I think his I think his parents probably picked up a little bit, knew that their son Bernard was different. They didn't like the fact that Bernard was different, i.e likely gay, and they didn't like Tim being around so much, being around Bernard. I think that's where this is going, and um. Uh, you know, I, uh, you know, very well might. I think, I think that Megan Fitzsimmons, I think, uh, she's a member of the LBGTQ community. So you, you very well could be right. I hope not because I think it's a more interesting story because again, I disagree with you that Tim, Tim Drake has no problems. I will agree with you that he was the most well-adjusted. Well, maybe Dick Grayson, their argument could be there clearly more well-adjusted than Damien and clearly more well-adjusted than Jason Todd. Yeah. And all throughout his his career as being Robin, I agree with you that he had a good balance. He did, you know, his dad was around. His dad remarried. He had a stepmom, and yeah, his life was pretty good. But the point being that when Damien showed up, and then everything that came after with him changing identities and being Red Robin, then dying and coming back, and at that point, I think is where he started to lose himself. I don't think he lost himself during the '90s when he was everybody's Robin. Uh, I think it was much later. I think he's only become lost in the last couple of years. And I certainly will say, in terms of what DC wants to do with him, ever since Rebirth has started, they haven't known what to do with him. Yeah. Ben just tried to make change his name to Drake. Oh, Drake, it's a it's a male <laughs> goose and it's fierce. But that was the stupidest thing. That they was, don't yeah. I don't know I don't know who Tim Drake is anymore. I is he Robin or is Damien still Robin? Like, yeah, you know was, what I mean? Like, I don't know who he is either. So yeah. I love this story because what I'm hoping is Megan Fitzsimmons' love of the character clearly comes through here. And I hope that by the end of the story that we will have a better idea of Tim Drake, who he is. He will have a better self-identity. And maybe his self-identity is, yeah, he comes out as gay. I Again, I hope not because I think 
that's tropey. Um, you know, to your point earlier, you're saying that the, the way it happened with, uh, with Alan Scott was much more organic. Um, so I kind of hope it doesn't happen with Tim Drake. I mean, if it does fine, yeah. but I think it'd be more interesting if there's some, something else behind it. Um, yeah. No, I, and, and I actually, I, I don't, I don't disagree with you that if, if that's, if that's where they're going and, and, and he's not, he's not gay and that's where they're going. That's fine. That's part of the story. I just, for, for, you know, my, I always had a, I always thought of, of Tim Drake as being a, a fairly well-adjusted, uh, you know, a member of the Bat family. And I always found him, he was, you know, he was, he was always just, I always sort of held him in, in high regard. I never really saw him as being really, you know, you know, really confused in terms of who he was and where he stood on things. But yeah. And uh, I think but, that's the point. I think that's the point of what Megan Fitzsimmons is trying to say here. He always was that. And everybody always thought that of him. And to go back to what you were saying about why, why would spoilers think it's weird? Well, he, he has been the most well-adjusted. So for him to stay up for two days straight and get no sleep whatsoever and just be hunting for his friend, that is out of character for him. So for him, it is acting strange. You know, it wouldn't be strange for Bruce Wayne, maybe, or for Jason Todd, somebody that's more obsessive. But, you know, to your point of him being the most well-adjusted, it is out of character for him to do something like that. And so I think that's that's the point here. That's why Connor's reaching out. That's why Steph- Stephanie Brown is worried so I, I I don't know. I like the story. I think the art is good. I am a little disappointed that it's only three parts because I think this could go on more. I, and, and again, I mean, Megan Fitzsimmons, her love for, for Tim Drake is is clearly uh, very strong. I mean, uh, I would love to see something a little longer from her, lo- longer going. Um, but, you know, much like uh, the teardrop story, we got one more. Uh, installment, and I guess we'll see who's right. If uh, he he <laughs> rescues Bernard, and you know yeah. they both slip each other some tongue, then hey, I guess well, you know. Right. Look, I, I don't, I, I, I frankly don't, I don't want Tim Drake to be gay. To be honest with you, I think I, I just don't think it. I just don't buy it. But I mean, if if it's going to be that way, then so be it. I mean, uh, big, you know, uh, I, I would rather just pass this off as a story that it's it's not my cup of tea and just you know go on and but I, I will say this that uh, a quick note that there has to be some drama in Tim Drake's life and so if they got him you know if if they want to go that route with him and say that you know he's trying to find himself et cetera et cetera that's that's fine but then if he's not Robin what is he so then is he going to be another hero he might as well be Drake you know I mean if he's not Robin who is he. And so it just seems like a really odd question to ask if I'm like, why is he asking that question now in the context and the way this story is set up? It's just, I, it's just I'm just not buying it. It's just, it's just one off. more reason. It's just one more reason I dislike Damien <laughs> because Damien, Tim Drake is my Robin. Uh, and and it, it's so interesting for me to say that because when I first started not to date myself, but much like yourself, when I first started reading Batman comics, there was no Tim Drake and there was no Jason Todd and Dick Grayson was Robin. But it is so interesting that it, it's so hard for them to age up these Robins and have them move on and be accepted in another role. It worked with Dick Grayson with Nightwing. It, it has worked to some extent with Jason Todd as Red Hood. But think about all the trials and tribulations that he had to go through. And you still could make the argument that they're still trying to figure out who Jason Hood is go back and listen to our conversation. We just had two minutes ago about teardrops. They're still trying to get the characterization of Jason Todd. Correct. Um, 
And now we've got Damien as Robin. And so, yeah, that sort of leaves Tim Drake out in the cold. But he's always been my favorite Robin. And I don't, I don't know. I mean, maybe because he was the first one that had that long-going series written by Chuck Dixon with the, um, the Tom uh, Lyle art, which was just fantastic in the 90s. So I guess we'll, I guess we'll have to see. But, um, yeah, clearly we, we have strong feelings. We've talked about that story a lot longer than I thought we would. <laughs> uh, so let's move on to the last one. It's the last uh, part of the, the six-part grifter story for Matthew Rosenberg with great art by Ryan Benjamin, colors by Antonio Fabella, letters by Seda Temefonte. The Long Con, right? I think I said six-part, five-part. Uh, the Long Con Part 5. Um, and, yeah, I'll let you go first, Rocky. You can uh, drop the spoiler bomb on everybody with your recap. Okay, well, the, the, this story continues. I'll just – I'll sort of preface a little bit here by uh, saying that uh, Cole, Cole Cash, Grifter's master plan here, was basically to he was to impersonate his brother Max uh, because his brother Max was a member of Leviathan, and uh, uh, Cole Cash infiltrated Leviathan. Leviathan wanted to take out Lucius Fox, and so that's how uh, 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 Grifter originally got involved here. And but ultimately, he betrays Leviathan and ends up saving Lucius Fox. And in in this particular story, uh, his the the goal here is that he needs to get into uh, he needs to get back he wants to get back into Wayne Tech or I, where I guess I guess Lucius Fox is the building where Lucius Fox is in, which I think it's the Wayne Tech building, and it's a little unclear as to why. Because you know why does Grifter want to get back into the building? But he needs to and. He has an agenda, and what that agenda is is that ultimately Grifter does want to get into the building of of Wayne Tech uh, because the in the building he knows what Lucius Fox knows, and that is that that's where the uh, a backup to the Bat computer is, and but he can't get into the building, so the only way he can is that he, Grifter goes and turns himself into Leviathan. The same guys that are running Leviathan and says, you know, and of course they want to kill him because Grifter took out in previous issues, Leviathan's agents. And he tells them, you know, you don't want to kill me. You need me to get you in because you don't want to kill Lucius Fox. You don't want me to kill Lucius Fox. Lucius Fox is a cash cow because you can have information on what's in the basement. You know, you know, this is what, this is the secret stash that you want in the basement of this, of this tower. And so, you know, help me get in. He So Grifter is asking Leviathan, help me get in and you guys will get a lot more information than you ever could possibly have. So help me get into this building. And so Grifter uses Leviathan to get in and then he betrays them because, you, you know, Grifter, he wants, he I'm sure he wants the information for himself, but he ends up getting thrown out of the, falling out of the building and, and, and then uh, he's out of the building, but he still needs to get back in. And so Nightwing and Batman show up. <laughs> and so he uses Batman and Nightwing to get back into the building because Batman knows how to get into his own building because he built it. And and so he ultimately gets ends up getting back into the building with Batman and Nightwing's help. And then he, of course, betrays Batman and Nightwing. <laughs> Multiple. <laughs> And basically goes back to Lucius. They go back to the basement. They're being chased by Leviathan's men. Batman and Nightwing are still are held at bay. 
So he's ahead of all of them. Drifter and Lucius Fox are ahead of all of them. They finally get into the basement. And Leviathan is on their ass and about to break through the door. And Lucius Fox is going to erase the backup system that has all the back computer files. He's going to erase it all. But before he can do that, Drifter betrays Lucius Fox. <laughs> Again, what is that? Third of four betrayals here by Grifter? And he takes out his USB uh, and he, he copies all the files and and then he he has Lucius Fox shut everything down, which allows, and here's the big spoiler, which allows the full his full Wildcat team to make an appearance. And he actually says, Max, did you get that? So his brother Max is still alive because Cole actually says, Max, did you get that? And uh, he says to Wildcats as as Leviathan breaks in, Leviathan, as Leviathan's forces break in, uh, let's remind them who the hell we are. And uh, I got to say, man, you, you got Zealot and you got all these other characters. And I got to I got to admit, Jace, I I I'm not familiar with all of these characters. It's been a long time since I read a Wildcats book. I'm not even sure who I, I know Zealot and I know Grifter. And is that, is that, I'm not even sure who those other characters are, to be honest with you. So I'm, I'm really curious. Uh, are you familiar with the other members on this Wildcat team, Jace? Uh, it's been, yeah, you put me on the spot. <laughs> it's been too long since I've read, I mean, and I just read the Wildstorm, you know, a couple of years ago. And so I should be, uh, but Death, Deathblow is one of them. Uh, right. Deathblow. You know, holding, right. Holding the, holding the big gun. Um, and then the woman with the, uh, the, cybernetic jaw or what have you she, I, I can't remember she i think they just call her just whatever her actual name is yeah. um so yeah i'm not i'm not 100 percent. is sure that fairchild is that morgan fairchild like of gen 13 uh, in the front there or, or is that is that be, a- it could be, it could be for, fairchild i don't think i don't think it's i don't think it's morgan fairchild i think that she's an actress no or uh, uh no uh no uh yeah not from gen, yeah from gen <laughs> from gen 13 uh yeah. yeah fairchild i don't i don't was it gen fairchild did i say morgan uh, that's awesome i'm, I'm dating did, myself yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. hey that back in the day morgan fairchild was hot so that's right um Caitlin, so yeah i mean caitlin fairchild isn't it caitlin, caitlin, there you go caitlin yeah that's fairchild. right <laughs> yeah i think i mean when we start talking I, spartan is not there clearly because he was the red and blue um, voodoo typically with the blue skin, if I remember right. So that could possibly be, yeah. um, I mean, Warblade, Ladytron. Um, yeah, I guess oh. we'll, we'll have to see backlash. Uh, probably not there. Um, yeah, wow. I, we'll have to see who the rest are, but yeah, I mean, it's super cool to have them show up. It's been, been many years. I think you are right about that being Fairchild. So Fairchild, yeah. Zealot. Grifter, Deathblow, Voodoo, maybe yeah. is the the blue skinned one. Um, and yeah, other than that, I'm I'm not sure. Well, I'm also if, wondering if 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 are all of these members of the Wildcat team are, are they from another Earth? Uh, maybe Cole really is from another Earth. Uh, you know, because it's interesting that none of the questions I don't think none of the questions that were asked, uh, none of the questions that are asked at the end. Uh, which, you know, these questions here, none of them have anything to do with the Wildcats in terms of uh, all these, that, that 
Director Bones is asking. So I'm I'm really curious is uh, if the Wildcats are going to play a role in Infinite Frontier or uh or not, but uh you know I you know and I don't know why. I mean DC bought Fawcett, they bought um Charlton, they bought, you know, these other companies and they've managed to integrate those characters into the DC universe proper pretty well, you know? Mm-hmm. Like nobody ever thinks, well, Blue Beetle, he just doesn't fit in. The question, he just doesn't fit in. Uh, Captain Marvel or Shazam, he, they, he just doesn't fit in. The Human Bomb, Uncle, Uncle Sam, any, you know, quality that comics, that's another company that DC bought. But for whatever reason, the most recent one, you know, Wildstorm, and Jim Lee is the face of DC and has been for decades now. For whatever reason, his characters have not been able to be successfully integrated. Grifter more so than anybody. He's probably yeah. been the, the most success, one that has integrated most successfully. But you would think that at least one or two, because even Grifter, when people see him, they, they don't associate him with DC. I would argue that when people look at Blue Beetle or Captain Marvel, Shazam, whatever you want to call him, Uncle Sam, Human Bomb, any of those, the question, people don't look at those characters and, and associate them first with their original publishing company. They associate those characters with DC Comics. Mm-hmm. I yeah. think when people look at Wildstorm characters, they think Wildstorm first and DC sec- second. Yeah, I think I, mean, right. I just called them wild. I just called them Wildstorm characters. Yeah. You know, I'm doing it myself, yeah. and I don't know why. And you know what? DC doesn't know why, and Jim Lee doesn't know why. Because if they knew why, they'd have fixed it by now, and yeah. these characters would be integrated yeah. properly, and they would work, and they they have it. So that being said, if anybody can do it, <laughs> I think it's Matthew Rosenberg. Because I think this story has been a whole heck of a lot of fun. It has been. Uh, and, and kudos to you for giving a masterful job of uh, kind of, you know, tying it up because it has been back and forth and we don't know which side Cole Cash is on or what con he's been running. And, you know, go back to the name of the story, the long con, because clearly, yeah. you know, whose side was he on? Is he on Lucius Fox's side or is he on Leviathan's side? He's flipping back and forth. Maybe he's on Bruce Wayne's side. Maybe he's on his own side. You know whose side he's on? He's on the Wildcats side. That's right, and that's who he, he was on all, all along. And now, as far as his as far as his brother still being alive, Max, I'm not 100 percent on that. Maybe maybe it's a, a computer that that he calls Max, artificial intelligence that Could has be. his brother's intelligence. Maybe maybe it is an alternate reality uh, or, or multiverse kind of thing, like you were saying. Maybe it's Max from another. Because uh, I hope that he is. I hope that it's not the Max that it was so integral in the origin of Cole Cash becoming Grifter because I, that kind of cheapens it in, in my mind, but it's comics and people come back from the dead all the time. So possible that, you know, DC death metal brought his brother back to life or, or whatnot. But I just, I, I hope I like, if I had my choice, it wouldn't even be, um, you know, another universe's max. It would be, uh, you know, the, an, an artificial intelligence that he kind of gave a personality to similar to his brothers and, and, you know, trying to keep the memory of his brother alive. That would be the most interesting to me. Yeah. Um, there, there, but I've, I've, no, go ahead. No, I was going to, uh, I want to say something a little bit off, off the track, off track yourself. Oh, finish. Go your ahead. Yeah. Well, go I ahead. just want, it, it, it's worth noting that there, one of the plot points was misdirection because Batman uh, at one point in this story, conf- uh, when, he confronts uh, Grifter and says, "By the way, I know that you didn't kill. I know you didn't kill Nora Freeze or the Toy Man." And Grifter says, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> and and in fact, Batman says, "I know you didn't kill them, 
Uh, Batman says, yes, you do know what I'm talking about it, but I know you didn't kill them anyway because I know that they're just duplicants, which is very interesting. So the body of Nora Freeze, that wasn't really Nora Freeze. It was a genetic duplicate, and the body of Toy Man was somebody else as well. So somebody planted those bodies, and Grifter knows nothing about it. So one has to wonder, was it Checkmate that was planting those bodies in order to, uh, to, to trick Leviathan into thinking that they had killed uh, Nora Freeze or killed Toy Man? Because Toy Man, we know, was working for uh, Checkmate uh, uh, at the end of uh, Event Leviathan. At one point, uh, you know, Toy Man has sort of turned a, a leaf after Superman changed, uh, revealed his secret identity. So one has to wonder who is responsible for the duplicate uh, genetic uh, bodies of Nora Freeze and Toy Man. So Nora Freeze is still alive. She's not dead. Mr. Freeze's wife is not dead, nor is the Toy Man. That is, and how that play, how that plays out, I don't know, but it is definitely worth mentioning. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I wasn't 100% convinced that Cole Cash wasn't just playing dumb there and that he did know that they were, duplicates and it was basically just you could be right man he's grifter maybe he lied yeah. about that too yeah yeah and, and and it's just it's wildcat technology that they were trying to it was a way to convince uh leviathan that cole cash was really a bad guy um yeah. but but it, it brings up the, the the other point i was going to make in that this isn't a story where you know in in these five parts these five issues where matthew rosenberg has tied everything up with a nice neat bow and we have all the answers um, there's so much more. And th in that way, it feels very much like a wild storm book, right? There's all these yeah. subplots. There's all these intrigues. You never quite know what's true and what's a fake out and, and that kind of thing. And so, and, and I, I said, when, when Matthew, I mentioned that tweet that Matthew Rosenberg put out the other day about, Hey, there's a big spoiler. Uh, and I responded to that tweet and I said, I wasn't at all expecting this ending, but I hope that you're writing the thing that, you know, come, I didn't want to spoil. I didn't want to say, I hope you're writing wildcats. Mm. Um, but I said, I, and I, but I hope that you're writing the thing, you know, the thing that we get here. And somebody else said, yeah, uh, read, read uh, Batman urban legends quickly. Cause you know, you don't want to let the cat out of the bag, which was, you know, an interesting way for somebody to drop a little hint. Uh, so yeah, I hope that if we get any kind of, wildcat story or any kind of grifter story or anything that's continuing out of this that matthew rosenberg is the one and i gotta think he would be yeah. um because this is a complicated story with a lot of moving parts and he's managed to keep it entertaining the whole time just and and understandable even if you sometimes you got to go back and go wait what what happened last month let me figure this all out and uh you know until the, the wild the wild storm uh series from warren ellis which was a totally different take on it um, I had, I hadn't really been interested in reading Wildcats for years, um, because I had just fallen off of it for so long and it had gotten so convoluted and I had stayed away for so long that I just didn't have it in me to want to go back and read it. This makes me want to not only read new Wildcats stories yeah. and, and more of this by Matthew Rosenberg, it makes me want to go back and read all the Wildcat stories. Uh, and have a good understanding of uh, what happened and when and, and all that kind of stuff. And I think we we mentioned this last week. Um, was it last week that we talked about um, what? another what? book that made us want to go back and and read everything from some particular character? So much it made us want to go back so much that we can't even remember what it was. Yeah. 
Um, I can't remember. <laughs> but yeah, but this makes me want to go back and read all the Wildcats uh, stuff I can get my hands on. So yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's great. And oh, you know what it was? I know I remember what it was. It was uh, on a new Comics Wednesday episode, and we were talking about Spawn, the Spawn universe from Todd McFarlane. Oh, I was talking yes. about with Jay. And how that made me want to go back and reread Spawn from uh, from issue one. This is very similar. Uh, it makes me want to go back and read all the the Wildcat stuff. And the last thing I'll mention about this uh, is the Ryan Benjamin art. You know, he Ryan Benjamin is such a talented artist. He can draw in so many different styles, and his style here definitely is evocative of Jim Lee in terms of the line work and the kind of dynamism that it that it has. It's just so it's so kinetic. The fight scenes are great. Um, we get those great Cole Cash smirks, and yeah, I think the artwork throughout has been of the, the highest quality. So far and away, without question, favorite grifter story I've ever read, uh, and the fact that all the Wildcats showed up. I mean, at that moment, you know, because he just he, – he built it up so well through the pacing of the issue that you knew something big was coming. I mean, this is the last issue, and it was clear to me. About halfway through, that we weren't going to get all the answers, but it felt like it was building up to something big. It, it, it and, also explains why it, it wasn't a Wildcat. He would he'd never got his own comic book because if it if it was his own comic book, you'd almost want to call a comic book Wildcats. You know what yep. I mean? <laughs> but you you can't call it Wildcats. You'd have to call it Grifter. But it's leading into a Wildcats story, so it, it's actually appropriately in this this urban legend anthology. So it's a really good lead in, I guess, in hindsight, anyway. Yeah, and and just fantastic. Like I said, you knew something big was coming, and that it must have been so much fun for Matthew Rosenberg to write that line. Actually, this is the moment I've been waiting for for a long time. Wildcats, let's remind them of who the hell we are. And then just to see them all standing there with that great splash page and then a, a double-page splash of action. Uh, you know, Kudos to, to Ryan Benjamin uh, and Antonio Fabella for the colors and uh, obviously Matthew Rosenberg for the story because – Man, it was uh, it was spectacular, and and Matthew's been talking about coming on the show. It's my fault I haven't reached out to him sooner to to have him come on. Just been trying to make time, but now that this is over, um, I'll probably need to reach out to him. And maybe maybe hopefully when this comes out on Wednesday, it'll be followed quickly by an announcement for a Wildcat series, uh, and we'll get him to come on and, and tease that a little bit as well. So yeah, absolutely spectacular. Big fan. And I remember when Batman Urban Legends was announced, I was like, ah, man, do we really need more Batman? I, I don't know if I'm even going to be picking that up. And then based on the strength of this story and based on the strength of that Chip Zdarsky story, I've been buying every issue, sometimes multiple covers of a seven ninety nine book. So you got me, DC. <laughs> you got me. So, all right, let's move on. Joker number five. Uh, this is written by James Tynan. We have uh, a fill-in artist, Franco Francavilla, fills in on art in this issue. And a good choice of artists, I have to say, for the type of issue that this is. And then uh, there is a backup that's written uh, also by James Tynan. Well, I, sh I should give the other credits for the main story. Um, Matthew Rosenberg is a co-writer on the main story with James Tynan. Uh, Francesco Francavilla, as I said, art and colors, and then Tom Napolitano on letters. And then uh, that backup story, uh, continuing the, the, the punchline story, punchline chapter five, written by James Tynan. He also has a co-writer on that, Sam Johns. The art and colors in that one are by Sweeney Boo, who did 
uh, one of the stories we just talked about in Batman Urban Legends. And the letters are by Ariana Marr. Um, so we'll get Rocky's thoughts on Joker in just a second. But w- one thing I just thought of before we, we dive into Joker, I think at some point when we were talking about that Tim Drake story, I was getting so worked up that I may have said Megan Fitzsimmons. I want to be clear. It's Megan Fitzmartin. That is the the writer's name, Megan Fitzmartin. I want to make sure that uh, we give proper credit there. So, uh, anyway, what'd you think of uh, Joker? Uh, Joker, uh, Joker issue five here. I, I thought was pretty good. I I, I love. I have a I have a bias. I really like uh, Fra- Francisco uh, Francavella's art. I've got I've got a lot of his art. I, I'm just putting together his. Uh, he did a, a string of covers and interior art for Lone Ranger with Dynamite, which were were excellent. And uh, he's also done uh, Arch Afterlife with Archie. He's done a series of covers that he, he's he, he's got a really good run as a as a cover artist. And and the interior here, I think he's just he, man. This is this is a really good. Uh, this is a good snapshot of uh, Jim Gordon in the past, and this issue of jo- of Joker uh, gives some background uh, about uh, in between Joker and and the 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 Samson family. Uh, Sawyer Samson is the head of the uh, of the is is the one who wants Joker dead because uh, it one of the uh, Sam's one of his sons is actually in jail. Was was actually in Arkham Asylum and was killed by the Joker gas. So uh, Sawyer Samson, the head of the uh, Samson family, wants he's he's the one that's got he's one of many that has a hit out on the Joker's life, and this gives the background of that. And it's a very fascinating background. And it it and uh, again, Tinian does a really good job here of showing Jim Gordon in his early years and on the night of. That his 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 children, uh, Barbara and young James, are going to be throwing him an, an anniversary, uh, wishing him and his mom a happy anniversary p- party. Uh, he instead ends up spending the entire night guarding Joker at Arkham Asylum because he's he 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 has a conversation with the with uh, 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 what is it Amadeus Arkham or whatever. Um, about you know, you need more security with the Joker. The problem is that there's so all the security is being most of the security at Arkham is used to protect this Samson character, and that's because uh, when this Samson character was was incarcerated at Arkham or institutionalized at Arkham, uh, Sawyer Samson used utilized his fortune to uh, build a separate ward to basically have uh, this Samson be well protected and that's because apparently this samson did something very horrendous but also it, whatever he did resulted in, in uh, the samson family becoming very very rich uh, becoming a very very rich crime family and and but so it takes jim gordon actually having to call sawyer samson and saying look we, we'd like to use some of the could, is it okay if we move your son and and we'd like to use we'd like to move the joker in where your son is because this joker your son is a model inmate you know your son is your, your son hasn't done anything wrong he's never tried to escape or anything but this joker guy he's a problem i'm worried about him of course joker's a new villain at that time so at the time sawyer samson this is in the early years of arkham he doesn't know who joker is you know tell me about joker and and ultimately it um uh, it it is uh it's discovered that uh that uh joker of course uh 
does does use his shenanigans and he 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 psychologically torments Gordon and this is just you know just really well done the interchanges and the dialogue here between Jim Gordon and uh and the and the uh and 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 Gordon and Sawyer Sampson and uh, uh, Mr. Arkham, very well done. And you really get a sense of just how obsessed Gordon is with the Joker. And in fact, I found myself getting pissed off at Jim Gordon in this issue because I, I was pissed off at him that he missed his uh, anniversary. That is his, 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 you know, at the very last page, he, you know, he's so obsessed with the Joker. He's so obsessed with, you know, his job. He just, you know, he can't leave it. And he really, he really, you could, he, you discover why he was such a shitty father and a shitty husband because he really did put the job first and for what for a piece of garbage like the joker for you know for a for a, for a piece of garbage like talking to sawyer samson or to uh some uh you know some you know crazy doctor you know of uh mr arkham whatever anyways uh but at the same time you admire jim gordon but you all, i also get frustrated with him there and he's putting up with the joker and and you can really see Jim Gordon's frustration, but at the same time, this is in Jim Gordon's early years. And we know that even years later, you know, 10, 15 years later, he still has the same obsession with the Joker. He's still putting up with the Joker's nonsense and his and his craziness and his psychosis. And Jim Gordon still hasn't changed, even though it continuously harms his personal life, destroys his personal life. It's destroyed his finances. It's destroyed his career. It's destroyed everything. And still Jim Gordon Jim Gordon is like a drug addict on crack except the drug he has is the Joker it's kind of really sad and pathetic and that's why this story is so effective to me because it made me realize that you know that that Jim Gordon has just as much an obsession with with his with his job and his mission as Batman does in fact arguably perhaps even more so Batman will will sacrifice great things. So will Jim Gordon. And you really, I got a new appreciation from this one issue. Uh, even though Batman's not even in it, I can appreciate why Batman loves Jim Gordon so much. Because they really are birds of a feather. They share the same obsession. They both battle the darkness of Gotham all the time. And they both seem to have the same obsessions with the same sort of group of, of Arkham inmates, in particular, the Joker. Any event, uh, I thought the art was fantastic. Uh, Francesco Francavilla, he's just he's just really good at, at 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 just of creating sort of a moody, darker, almost like a horror like atmosphere. The use of orange and black, I mean, the coloring here is just fantastic. I I just I mean, it, this really you really got a sense of the paranoia that Jim Gordon had uh, when when he's trying to keep track of the joker and he's fearful that joker's disappeared but he really hasn't man overall this this you know the, the torment that joker puts uh jim gordon through a young jim gordon in early in his career and just plays him like a violin and you know what the joker always gets one up on 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 jim gordon and ma frankly makes him look like a fool and um and even now in the later years, I mean, I'm hoping that this ish, this Joker series ends with Jim Gordon not getting some kind of redemption uh, or a leg up on the Joker, if that's possible. Even though this series is called The Joker, <laughs> I am cheering for Jim Gordon. But in any event, I love this. Uh, it This pissed me off, this story, because I but it pissed me off in all the right places. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I agree with you. The uh, Francisco Francavia art is absolutely spectacular. He is, in my mind, one of the best horror artists out there. Even though this isn't a pure horror story, it definitely – there's menace there. There's tension, uh, you know, with the Joker in Gordon's mind being this this huge problem. And, and we know that ultimately Gordon is right, but uh, it is tough to see him sacrifice his family and, and make those mistakes – uh, because he he just wouldn't feel right if if you know he would feel responsible knowing what he knows or what he suspects about the Joker if the Joker were to escape and and kill people so he's kind of stuck between uh, a rock and a hard place uh, and you do feel for him because like you said the the Joker is able to sort of pull his strings uh, and seems to be one step ahead um, so those are the positives uh, of the art and and the story itself stands on its own very very well um, but based on the previous issue to have this just show up. I mean, it's, it says years ago, Gotham city, and we just get this story. Um, and it, and it, it does tie into what's been happening previously in the series with the dynamic between uh, Jim Gordon and the Joker, but it's it doesn't tie in, you know, it sort of ties in spiritually with the series, but it doesn't tie in with any of the, parts of the story, the narrative that's actually been going on. So for that reason, it, I almost wish this had been somewhere else, um, but I can understand why it would, why it would be here. But then I can't help but think of like putting this in the trade. I guess you put it in at the end of, of the first trade as the last story. And then you go into the next one because maybe the narrative is going to pick up, you know, back in South America or, or whatever. So I don't know. It just, it doesn't feel completely out of place, but it's just it, it stylistically, it's just so different than anything that has come before in the series that I just wonder how it's going to read in a in a collected edition. But on its own, it's spectacular, wonderful, you know, kind of one and done. Um, and I love the, the fact that it's Matthew Rosenberg. So I, I'm wondering, uh, are we going to get more Matthew Rosenberg writing the Joker? Uh, or Jim Gordon or something like that. Um, yeah. Because his, 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 his uh, Joker feels a little less in the whole kooky, crazy, insane, and a little more malevolent and, um, you know, sort of, uh, God, what's the word I'm, I'm looking for? Um, just, you know, he's, he's very much like a puppet master, you know, he's very Machiavellian where he's, he's got plans within plans within plans. Yeah. Um, and I feel like that kind of Joker that is more scary to me than somebody who's just absolutely crazy and could do any, anything at any moment. Like give me somebody who actually is three or four steps ahead of everybody else. That mm -hmm. to me is more, is more scary. So, yeah, it is interesting to note that it ended up that the Joker ended up being, uh, you know, roommates with uh, this Samson uh, inmate as well for a period of time, which might be interesting and might have, might, be relevant as this story progresses as Sawyer Samson gets closer to the Joker to avenge the death of his son, which, you know, the Joker had nothing to do it, uh, with what happened at Arkham Asylum. So the Joker says, so, uh, so maybe uh, it's going to be interesting to see if, if there was, if there's any further interplay from the relationship between Joker and the Samson family. Yeah. Uh, okay. Punchline story up next chapter five. Um, I, got nothing here to say i haven't i haven't liked this story um it it's a punchline story but it feels like at times it's been a bluebird story 
uh, and or uh, a story about her brother Cullen, um, and that doesn't change here. Uh, so I'm not sure what exactly they're trying to accomplish, but I I struggle to get through this. Um, I I'm just yeah I'm struggling, and maybe it's just because it's punchline and I don't care for the character, but. I thought the art was fantastic. I hadn't heard of Sweeney Boo before. Um, I think I'd seen some one shots or some pinups or something that, that they'd done. I don't even know if it's a guy or girl. I'm Sweeney Boo. I'm assuming girl, but I could be wrong. Uh, but then we got two Sweeney Boo books or two Sweeney Boo stories this, this week in the same week. And yeah, the art absolutely spectacular. Uh, beautiful line work and colors, which Sweeney Boo does both. So, um, for that reason, I'm glad I read it. But as far as the narrative, this punchline backup can't end soon enough in my mind. So, yeah, I I I, I kind of agree. I love Sweeney Boo. I, I met her uh, in uh, New York City Comic Con in October of 2019. I got her. She uh, she does the IDW uh, Captain Marvel uh, series, and I got her to sign gotcha. a couple of those issues. And uh, I quite I quite like her I quite like her work there. Uh, I, I I have a large uh, animated comic collection and I, I like her style here. This is actually a, a different style. I, I like the line work and the, the coloring here is much. This is superior to her Captain Marvel work uh, by quite a. I, I think this is definitely a step above. So she she's definitely getting better. So uh, yeah, and uh, so artistically, yes, Sweeney Boo's fan. Uh, I really like it. I'm not really sure. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I didn't really, I don't, I'm not really buying into this whole punchline thing. I, I think that they're taking the wrong approach to this. Uh, not, not much happens here. This is just punchline. We know from last issue, she took out a, a, you know, she made a name for herself, even though punchline was, uh, uh, even though punchline was sort of incapacitated and beat up for a while she's she's come back and now she runs the prison and now she wants to go after this person called kelly ness and i i don't know who kelly ness is are, are we supposed to know who kelly ness is i uh, i don't know who it is yeah I, I i have no idea who it is if it's i'm I, you know there's been so many newer members of the dc universe i'm thinking maybe we missed something in future state or something but i i don't know who this kelly ness is at, uh, at all and why why punchline wants to apparently i i guess abuse her uh but uh yeah i'm not really i'm not really feeling the punchline back up there i i think they're they're really you know i i thought you know to play script doctor i i thought i i really think that they're they're writing punchline wrong but uh you know i it's not my place to play, play script doctor, but uh, I'm not going to give this much of a review. Uh, much of a review. I just sort of skim read it, and I, punchlines now after this Kelly Ness, and I don't know why, and I'm not really sure I care at this point, because as long as punchlines in prison, I'm not sure what she's going to. She's not really having much of an impact on Gotham or the DCU in general. So it's it's a yeah. I just this story. Yeah, the story feels completely pointless. I don't get it, and I don't like punchlines. So it's it's definitely. It's definitely not for me. Um, yeah, D do something with punchline or don't, but stop wasting pages on this. <laughs> That's kind of how I feel. Yeah. Uh, all right, let's move on. Next book we're going to talk about, Justice League, Last Ride, number three, from the aforementioned master, Chip Zdarsky. Uh, he handles the writing duties. Miguel Mondoka 
another fantastic artist uh, who's also a really, really great guy. The colors are by Enrica Angiolini, and letters are by And World Design. Wow, is this book just so good. Um, I really wish Chip Sadarsky was writing the regular Justice League title instead of uh, Bendis, despite the fact that this is supposedly the last Justice League story, that's the name, The Last Ride. Uh, and that's why the Justice Leaguers are, they're kind of like, uh, they're bickering here, you know? They they don't, they're not getting along, um, like families do sometimes. But Zdarsky, he puts that right out there. And, uh, you know, he uses, he uses uh, Wonder Woman as his mouthpiece, you know? And she says, you can fight it all you want, gentlemen, but we're bound together. Books will be written about our deeds for millennia to come. We are families, and families may fight, but in the end, they are still family to the League. Uh, and that's a perfect summation of, of what's going on here. Um, basically, uh, Lobo has been captured. He's, they wanna, the United Planets wants to put him on trial for all his various crimes over the years. And uh, the, there are plenty of people in the galaxy who don't want Lobo to go to trial. First of all, they just think he, there's plenty of people that just think he deserves to be just executed summarily. Then there's other people who say, well, if Logo goes to trial, they, we, he, Lobo has info that they don't want to come to light, right? Like, oh, well, this person hired me to do it. You know, I did this terrible thing. Well, this person put me up to it and that, and that sort of thing, right? So it will paint some people in a poor light. So for that reason, they want Lobo killed. So, uh, you know, we saw in the first issue that despite... Batman and Superman not wanting to work together. This was a, enough of a reason for them to put their differences aside. And Batman comes up with a plan. And that's kind of a running joke throughout the series that Batman always comes with a plan. They're going to go to Apocalypse and they're going to hide Lobo there uh, because Darkseid has disappeared many, many years prior. So in this issue, the League arrives on Apocalypse. They hear from other members of the Green Lantern Corps, namely... Jessica Cruz and Kilowog that the cat's out of the bag and people already know where Lobo uh, was being taken to be hidden. And so uh, toward the end of the issue, the league has to split up and try to prevent Logo from being killed. Uh, Flash and Superman are left to guard Lobo while Batman and Aquaman, I think it's Aquaman. No, it's Batman and Jon Stewart. They go to uh Darkseid's lair to try to uh, find some weapons. No, I'm wrong. Again, decides. No, no, they go. Uh, it's Batman and Hal Jordan that go to Darkseid's uh, headquarters to try to find weapons that can stop the people oh. that are going to invade. Uh, where and then you have John Stewart and Wonder Woman out there meeting that fleet. Um, so it's action packed from start to finish. But where this really shines is in between all the action, the little character moments where through clever use of dialogue and scripting and pacing, Zdarsky is revealing who these characters are at this time. Like, we know who Batman is. We know who Flash is. We know who Wonder Woman is. We know all these characters intimately, um, but we don't know them in this context where something horrible has happened. The whole reason the League kind of fell apart was there was something that happened where Martian Manhunter was killed and Batman and Sup it seems to be, we don't know hundred percent, but it seems to be based on a plan that Batman had and Superman going along with it. And Martian Manhunter paid the, the ultimate price. And that's sort of the, the seed of all the angst and why they're, they're not getting along. So um, 
again, this is a fantastic story uh, brought to life expertly by Mind uh, Miguel Mondoca, whose art I've been a fan of for a long time. Uh, his detective comics work with Brian Edward Hill was fantastic. Uh, and I've, I've loved his art. He's done some Aquaman issues and uh, I have a commission by him. I've showed off many times. Um, and all that being said, with the incredible line work he's done, and there's great color work in this issue as well. This is my favorite issue that he's ever drawn. He does a couple things here that are stunningly good. Um, there's particularly one page where Superman is in the room where, uh, where Lobo is being held in this cage and Lobo's kind of talking some smack, uh, saying, yeah, you, you know that, you're off your game, Superman. I can, I can tell that you're not getting along with, you know, the rest of the team. Uh, and I've seen that look on, on people's faces before. It's the look they get when they know the end is coming. Um, and you know, you've been, you've been out there swinging for a long time, swinging away at death. And I bet your arms are tired. You're not, you're not coming back from this fight. And as he's saying that, as, as Lobo's saying that Miguel, we, we get a picture of Superman through the bars of the cage and then we get a closer like a medium shot, and then we get a close-up of his face. I was blown away. Like, I sat there, and I stared at that page. I stared at that last panel, that picture of Superman, for, like, several minutes. And then I finished reading the story, and I went back several times to look at it again because I was just – I mean, that is gorgeous storytelling. Uh, and just the – you can see all the emotion in Superman's face. You know exactly what he's thinking. Um, and I, I just thought it was absolutely some of the best, best art I've ever seen from Miguel. I mean, I was just blown away. I, I can't say enough about how spectacular the art is in this, uh, in this book. Um, the facial expressions, uh, he gets to draw spaceships. Um, he gets to draw Wonder Woman looking super menacing coming out of the top of the, of her ship, you know, when she goes up there. Yeah, there's the page there. Rocky's got it on if you're watching this on YouTube where she's, you know, climbing out to confront these, uh, this armada of spaceships that showed up to, uh, to dispose of Lobo. I mean, tell me she doesn't look like a badass and ready to just kick butt. I mean, that is just, <laughs> she looks good. Fantastic. I mean, the, yeah, for me, best single issue that Miguel's ever done, like absolutely blown away by this art in this issue. I mean, just, like, I don't know if he had extra time. I, I, I don't know. Because the art has been really good. Don't get me wrong. I, like I said, I'm a fan of Miguel, and I pay attention when he draws something. Um, but it's like he leveled up, man. Like, it is so good. Uh, even when you talk about the backgrounds, you know, the stuff he does in the landscape, the stuff he puts in the background of Dasad's lair, where, they've, uh, where they're held, holding Lobo uh, prisoner. I mean, it's fantastic. Uh, even in, in Batman has a dream at one point where he, he hears the Martian Manhunter talking to him. Uh, even the backgrounds and detail in that dream are, are fantastic. So, yeah, I really feel like Miguel leveled up in this issue, man. Just uh, all right. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shut up and stop singing Miguel's praises now. Um, but, yeah, I, I'm loving the story. It, it's one of those that is really building. Um, it was compelling and hooked me from the first issue from Zadarsky, but it has gotten better with each subsequent issue. It's gotten more compelling. 
Um, and yeah, it's fan fantastic story. I mean, this, this is one I'm buying the single issues. I'll probably buy the trade too, just to have a, a nice, uh, you know, collected edition of it on my shelf. what do you think? Rocky hated it. Uh, I, I, th- I thought it was good. I, I agree with you. The art, the art's really good. I, I will say though, that I was a little disappointed that, uh, you know, they're, we have the Justice League. They're basically alone on this. They're alone on Apocalypse. They're in, you know, they're they're in the Sods outside the Sods Tower torture chamber there, and they're around a campfire. And the substance of their conversation, there is no substance. They, they, they In fact, the only thing we, I mean, they, the only thing we readers learned um, is that uh, Batman can bragged about being able to fall asleep in seven seconds. And he, he only needs two hours sleep. That's really all. That was the extent of the deep conversation that they had. And, and like, I can, we can laugh about that. And that's funny. And, and it is funny. And it is. And, uh, but it, this is a team that is hurting. This is a team that lost one of their own, Martian Manhunter. And they're, you know, and Superman is around the campfire. And, you know, at some point they say, to the league, to the league. They're still family. And Wonder Woman talks about family. And, and that's all well and good. But I, Nobody is talking about the fact that they lost Martian Manhunter. It's a topic that seems to be off topic. Like it's, it seems to be off limits. They're not talking about it. And I just, I, I thought that, you know, last issue we, I really like last issue where we got flashbacks to how, what happened that led to the death of Martian Manhunter. I, I think this would have been a perfect time to have flashbacks while they're around the campfire even if if it's even if people are silent and nothing's being said, it could have shown their thoughts about what le- led to the death of Martian Manhunter. Now uh, we're going to probably get that in future issues. And by the way, you know, I, I'm just interpreting it that it's a it's a very sensitive topic. Batman doesn't want to talk about it. Superman doesn't want to talk about it. But here's and and nobody's bringing it up. I found it very telling. And I uh, so while at the same time while I, on the one hand, I can say I like the character work. On the other hand, I think it's, I think I can also say there was no character work in, in a sense that we never really got to know anything about what we not, you know, I mean, Wally West, I mean, doesn't say anything about, you know, everyone's joking around They're you know, they're, we're not really learning about, this is surface level stuff. We never got. We never got. How do they? How does Wonder Woman feel about the loss of Martian Manhunter? How? What about uh, Batman, Superman? We're not getting that around that campfire yet. They're just. They're just sitting around there. And this is. I was really hoping for a little bit more. I'm sure we're going to get it in subsequent issues. And I know I'm being a little bit. I. I shouldn't expect all that from Trip Sardaski because, quite frankly, very. You know. I always say that the Avengers, we know more, there's often more better character work in the, in an average Avengers title than there are, you know, I know more about Tony Stark than I know about, uh, you know, uh, about Wally West or Batman sometimes because he just don't get, because DC always seems to go so surface level sometimes. But in any event, um, I do like it and I am looking forward to more. I just wish that there was a little bit more, uh, I thought it was a missed opportunity around that campfire, but, uh, you know, but that's just me. I don't know. They, I mean, Flash talks about telling campfire ghost stories and <laughs> Batman, you know, <laughs> says, I don't think this fire is worth it just so you can eat some mores because he doesn't even want to conjugate the contraction of yeah. some and mores into s'mores. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm talking about so, bonding, though. I'm talking about, like, the bonding, no, no, not I, getting yeah. into there. Well, yeah. I mean, I think that's I, – I took it as that's the point, right? Like, we've seen in previous issues where uh, – we saw in the first issue where Superman did try to bring it up, and Batman was not having it. So I think that's the whole point. It is awkward, and it is uncomfortable, and these are people that have gone to battle and saved the universe and fought side by side and are closer than any family ever really could be. And they're not talking about it. And that's the point. That's how fractured they are. That's how devastating that loss was. That even as close as they are, or they were at one point, they no longer are. They can't talk about it. It's too painful. Um, so despite the fact that these are you know, inc- incredible beings, I, I, you know, they've been called gods before with the exception of Batman. And that's why Batman is so amazing because he fights alongside gods. These people with these godlike powers. And despite all those powers and despite all their abilities, in a way, they're no different than the rest of us. Uh, they're still human and loss is something that's hard to deal with and hard to talk about. So that's kind of what, what I've been taking from it. Because um, I agree with you. It, it did seem really awkward. And again, I think that's the point, especially when Hal at that moment says it's us against the universe. And Wonder Woman says, well, we've been here before and we'll be here again. And in that panel where she says that and we'll be here again you see Superman and Batman and they're, they're both looking down and they're both looking away from each other. And they both have a look of kind of sadness and angst on their face because they know they should be better than this. Um, but they can't get past the loss. So, you know, it, it makes it, it makes it relatable in that way. So yeah. and that, that's how I'm reading it. Maybe I'm giving Zdarsky too much credit. Who knows? No, it's uh, it's like I said. I'm I, I I admit I'm being a little bit hard on him, but uh, I'm I've always been a little bit more harsh on DC in general because I I would love to see more. I would I want to see a payoff from this. I I want to I want to ha- see a conversation between Superman and Batman at the end of this story to you know to have uh, to have some type of revelation. Have this come full circle and. Uh, well, I mean, Zadarsky has done a bunch of work for Marvel and is very good at, at emotion, you know. And yes, his, he has. Yes. In, in his Spider-Man life story and his Daredevil. So I just can't imagine that just because he moves over to DC, he's going to change his storytelling style and just keep things on the surface. So, but I guess we'll, I guess we'll see. I think it's, I think this is a five issue. So I think there's two issues left. Might be a six. But I think it's a five. So yeah, there's at least two or three issues left. So. Uh, all right, on to the next book we're going to talk about. I know this is one that that you liked a lot more than me. It's the uh, it's the Flash Annual that sort of wraps up this entire blink of an eye storyline that's been going on since Jeremy Adams took over the writing duties for Flash. Uh, and I do like the fact that we're getting the end of the story in this kind of double sized annual. Um, you know, a lot of times DC will do an annual. It's just kind of a throwaway. So I, I do like that. Plus we get the end of the story sooner. It would be two more months before we got the rest of the story if it was in the regular issue. So I love that they're uh, wrapping it up here in this uh, this Flash annual. Uh, so as I said, Jeremy, writer, Jeremy Adams is the writer. Fernando Passerin and Brandon Peterson are the artists. They trade off. Uh, Brandon Peterson does all the current timeline stuff and Fernando Passerin does the Wally West traveling through time stuff. Hi-Fi and Michael Atea are the colorists. Steve Wands does the letters. And there is a Brandon Peterson cover that's okay, but there's a Brett Booth cover that's freaking amazing. I love the Brett Booth cover on this book. Um, so I don't know which one I ordered. I do hope that I ordered the Brett Booth cover. <laughs> I, pro- I probably did. I'm a pretty big Brett Booth fan. So anyway, I know you love this, so take it away. 
Well, I mean, let's uh, let's be blunt. Who? Nobody liked Heroes in Crisis, and so you might I be did. thinking, well, well, okay, well, I'm I'm, I'm being the exception. I, I, I'm the exception. I know. Well, uh, fair enough. Uh, but but most a lot of people didn't like Heroes in Crisis, and um, and it was because of what happened to Wally West. Now, I happen to think that the uh, I I thought that Tom King did a good job creating a lot of emotional gravitas for Wally West. I just wish it was a different character other than Wally West. And I thought I thought he hit a lot of emotional high points for me in Heroes in Crisis. And I'm speaking as someone who who has had a suicide in the in the family, and, and so it was uh, it it really I thought it was very well done. I just didn't like the fact that it was Wally West that it was done too. <laughs> and um, in any event, this this annual, in my view, is the redemption that people want for Wally West because ultimately, spoiler alert here, this th- this entire story, this blink of an eye finale, this blink of an eye finale is all about is all about a redemption for Wally West. Because all these temporal explosions that have been occurring in the blink of an eye, all these issues where that where Wally West was jumping from from body to from speedster to speedster throughout the timeline in World War Two and and in the future and and all the different places, it was all because the Speed Force is contaminated. It's contaminated with something, and the Speed Force uh, is trying to regurgitate this infection that it has, and. And it ends up that, uh, I mean, through the course of this story, you find out that there's a very specific uh, villain that is the cause of that infection. And in, in, in the Speed Force's attempt to push out the, insp- in the infection, every time Wally West, it's using Wally West, putting him from timeline to timeline, and he ends up in the sanctuary just at the, in a temporal bubble, just as the lightning from the, the explosion from the speed force, which killed all the the inma- uh, all the patients at at the sanctuary, just at that moment, and what he you know, and it's a it's a very powerful moment. I thought it was very emotional. Uh, he's very taken aback by it. All the all the all the patients of sanctuary that are caught in the time bubble, he's you know, they're frozen in time except for one patient, and of course. It's Roy Harper. And I think this is a, it's just, this issue has so much gravitas to it. I think this is what, this issue for me was so satisfying. I'm almost glad, I said almost, almost glad that Heroes in Crisis happened just so I could get this issue out of it. Because this is Roy Harper. He's saying, what the hell just happened? And, you know, you get these powerful moments between and Wally right away. He tells, he tells Roy what's happened. You know, Roy, you're alive. And right away, you know, Barry Allen, remember that Barry Allen, Oliver Queen and Mr. Terrific, they can see what Wally West is seeing through their temporal connection through the speed force. And this has an emotional impact on Oliver because Roy Harper's is, is basically, it's like he's it's his son. And Roy Harper is alive here. He's not dead. Of course, you got to remember they don't know that Roy Harper is actually is actually still alive and a, and a Black Lantern. They don't know that. But this is how Roy Harper initially. This is how he died, and that you know the moments here, the the way Jeremy Adams goes back and forth here, just does a absolutely masterful job. 
when in that sanctuary scene at the beginning, when when Wally talked about uh, when he was reflecting, he he talked about how don't leave before the miracle happens. That was something that Roy Harper always you know said to him: don't leave before the miracle happens. And and that phrase, along with the phrase "redemption is hope for tomorrow," is is that's basically the theme throughout the story. And the miracle that happens here is you know surprise surprise is ultimately uh you know wally west does heal the speed force but it requires a sacrifice but that requires getting rid of the infection and that infection comes across with just a fantastic reveal artist fernando passerini and brandon peterson man they combine their artistic talents absolutely fantastic there's a beautiful scene with with the villain Savitar walking out saying, ah, I was, you know, I was wondering what, you know, what was pushing me out. Cause, <laughs> and of course, uh, it's revealed Savitar is, is discovers that it's Wally West has been the one that's been preventing him from fully getting full power and taking control of the speed force. It's a fantastic reveal. It just, I just, this really hit me, man. This was just, just a great reveal. And, Wally and Roy, you know, they know that they got to stop Savitar and and it's clear that Savitar is kicking Wally West's ass because he, he's lost the connection to the Speed Force and Barry Allen and uh, Mr. Terrific discover that the only way that Wally West can get his connection to the Speed Force back is if they pierce the time bubble, freezing time, but that will mean that all the patients in the sanctuary will, of course, die and so will Roy Harper and they can't prevent Roy Harper's death and there and of course that drives Oliver Queen crazy you know you got to find a way to save Roy you got to find a way to save Roy but Barry reminds him about Flashpoint you know I tried that it doesn't work it's hard but you got to do it this way and it's just the dialogue and you know <laughs> I know this this might seem very tropey to some people but it there's a there's a end part here where Roy Harper, you know, literally looks into, into Wally West's eyes to say goodbye because he knows that Oliver, uh, Oliver can see him. And it's, it, I know it was tropey. It reminded me of that scene at the end of Armageddon where Bruce Willis is saying goodbye to his daughter, you know, <laughs> it's very tropey, but, uh, I think it just worked. And, you know, one of the complaints about Heroes in Crisis is that Roy Harper just suddenly died. He had no moment to shine. He had no moment to say goodbye. He had no moment to say goodbye to Oliver. He didn't really, he went out, he just went out so abruptly and, and so almost pathetically and not heroically. But here he does, he does what we, he does what we all wanted him to be. This is, this was a story that Jeremy Adams clearly wrote for the readers he gave us what we wanted, or at least what I wanted, and I really, really enjoyed this. And with Roy Harper telling Oliver, you are a great dad, I love you, Ollie. I mean, I don't know how you can read this and not get a little bit of the feels. I got the feels reading this. I thought this was great. And and then when all, when uh, he, Roy Harper says his goodbyes, he pierces the bubble. He's the one that does it, because you know Wally couldn't. Wally probably couldn't do it. It took Roy Harper to do it, and he did it. And of course, uh, I got to tell you, man, my biggest feelings and his final words were love you, Lian. Those were Roy Harper's final words. Lian is, of course, his daughter who who died. Uh, and um, we know that she is the Cheshire cat. 
in Future State, she's actually uh, Selena Kyle's sort of like stray cat and also sidekick to, to Catwoman in Future State. And of course, him and his uh, him and Cheshire, uh, the mother of Leon, of course, uh, that's the connection there. I just love that. I uh, saying goodbye to his daughter, a, a beautiful sacrifice. And this gives more gravitas in my view to his return in infinite frontier because we know he's not actually dead. So, you know, you know, how does Roy Harper return? Now readers are really going to be asking that. Look, we know we've seen Roy Harper die. This is a more real and effective and powerful death for Roy Harper than we got in Heroes in Crisis. This heightens the gravitas of 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 Infinite Fr DC Infinite Frontier and what we're going to be getting out of uh, that moving forward. And knowing that he's come back as a Black Lantern, that Roy Harper isn't dead. How did he, how, you know, what are the circumstances of him coming back? This just worked for me. And the trap that they set when Savitar, you know, the, the, the tachyon breadcrumbs that, that when the time bubble is pierced, Barry Allen and Mr. Terrific sent a tachyon beam at that, along to, to guide Wally back, which pulled Savitar into, uh, back to the lab where the Justice League is waiting. And my, one of, one of my favorite moments out of, out of many here is uh, Barry Allen, you know, gives Wally the, the, the flash ring and he puts on the flash ring and, uh, and he, and he, he, you know, he, he actually exclaims and I'm going to, I'm just going to go out here for a second, uh, uh, switch up here to another. Yeah. I, I just love this scene where, where Wally West is basically saying, you know, I've, the, He's been saying the speed force has been dragging me around for a reason. And I finally figured out what that reason is. And Savitar says, what is that? And he says to be the fastest man alive and boom. I mean, man, this was like, to me, this was, I was like goosebump after goosebump after goosebump, but with emotional feels, emotional feels. I love Wally West. I don't like, I'm not a big fan of Barry Allen. I didn't enjoy Joshua Williamson's flash run. I thought it was terrible. Uh, but this, this is my flash. This is fantastic. Uh, this almost makes Heroes in Crisis worth it just so I can get this, these epic moments with Wally West, man. But uh, yeah, I don't know, man. Uh, it, it didn't, it never, never hit you? It, nothing in the fields there, Jace? Nothing? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing at all. And, and I'll tell you why, because I, I think that Heroes in Crisis on its own is a very emotional story. Uh, and it's it's trying to talk about the trauma and the fact that you can't just, it's not a bottomless pit, you know, going back to what I was just talking about with Chip Zdarsky, these, despite their powers and their abilities and, you know, God, you can call them modern gods. It all takes a toll, right? Like they sit around the campfire and they can't talk about loss. That's what Heroes in Crisis was. And I feel like this completely invalidates Heroes in Crisis, completely invalidates what Tom King was trying to do. Um, is anybody going to be mad that Roy Harper... So Wally lost control in Heroes in Crisis and inadvertently killed all those people, right? And the fact that, that, that it was Wally and Wally's beloved and DC fans lost their minds and you know, Tom King's a hack and Heroes in Crisis sucks and blah, 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 right? Mm. So come to find out, it wasn't Wally. 
it was Roy Harper, and he made a conscious decision to kill all those people. He made a conscious decision to pierce the the Speed Force bubble and kill all those people, including himself. Do you think there's going to be a single DC fan that's mad at Roy Harper? <laughs> How's that fair? I don't understand how that's... And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe people are going to be like, Roy Harper well, that's about change. Yeah, but you can't change time, though. Because otherwise you'd be changing time and creating another Flashpoint paradox. This has already happened. And so it's about... It's, it's about but it did change. But it did change. It did change. Wally, or are, are, are we supposed to think it was never Wally and it was always Roy, which, right, you can't change time. So that's what we're finding out here, that really it was always Roy that caused the explosion. It was never Wally, thus the redemption of Wally West, right? But people are still going to blame Tom King for having Wally West because – Let's face it, Heroes in Crisis got a lot of press and a lot of marketing, and a lot of people read it. And hard compared to how many people are going to read this Flash annual, you know, what, 5% of people that read Heroes in Crisis are going to read this Flash annual or understand it because it's gotten so convoluted? I mean, I've lost track. How many times has have various DC writers tried to redeem Wally West from what, what happened in Heroes in Crisis? Well, I mean, I'll, I'll grant you that, yeah. First, first we had, the, you know, Flash Forward, and then we had – Josh Williamson and pages of flash and which they're just constantly, Hey, let's fix it. Let's fix it. Let's fix it. Why in God's name did DC editorial approve Wally West killing these people seemingly in the pages of heroes of crisis, if they're just going to spend the next four years trying to undo it. It's idiotic to me. It's it, I, I don't care for it. I, I don't like retcons. You know that for the most part. Uh, and so I don't like this. Um, I, I but whatever. I mean, plenty of there's plenty of people that are going to feel about it the way you feel about it, and that's fine. But it just it bugs me the unfairness of it. Nobody's gonna nobody's gonna blame Jeremy Adams. No 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 Roy Harper stands are going to come out of the woodwork and attack Jeremy Adams the way Tom King was attacked for you know saying it was Wally West. Well, you know what? Everybody owes Tom King an apology because it wasn't Wally West that killed. Anybody. Wally West killed nobody in Heroes in Crisis. According to this story, Roy Harper killed all the people. Roy Harper caused the explosion that killed all the people in Sanctuary by piercing the time bubble. Well, so, if it wasn't Roy Harper, it would have it would have had to have been Wally or somebody else. It was inevitable. Roy Harper did that because he knew Wally couldn't and he knew it needed to be done. Otherwise, you create a flashpoint paradox. So it, this isn't quite – this isn't no, about Roy no, Harper becoming a murderer. I mean – You don't – no, you don't – you don't know that. We don't know. So the time bubbles expand. The, the speed force bubbles expanding, and eventually, it's going to explode on its own. Well, you also right. have Savitar coming back, that. who's going to kill them both. Who's right. so they have I to act quickly. They don't that. have. They don't have. They I, don't have time to I, to wait. I I, mean. I totally understand that. <laughs> I totally understand that. But you cannot argue that Roy Harper made a conscious wow. decision to pierce the bubble, whether he had good reason or not. He made a conscious decision well, to pierce the bubble and kill everybody. So, am I saying he's Who a are dead already? Who we knew to no, be dead already? No, they're frozen in time. They're frozen in time. Well, they're sure, not they, dead. How are they dead? But not indefinitely. But not indefinitely. They're going. They're going to die. Whether so, your point is they're going to die whether Roy Harper pierces the bubble or not, because the bubble is eventually going to expand and and explode on its own. 
Well, if he doesn't, well, if he, well, if he doesn't, the only way to stop Avatar from, from, from scooping up all the power of the speed force is by piercing the bottle, the bubble. Also remember that Savitar is working for somebody. Savitar, somebody imprisoned Savitar into a dark place. And I think that person was dark side. We don't know who it is, but somebody, somebody gave Savitar a connection to the speed force. Savitar died a long time ago. No, somebody, but Savitar, but it's explained in that Savitar says he, he didn't, he thought he died, but then he woke up in a dark place and then he felt suddenly he had a connection to the speed force. Yes, I got, yes, yes. So, but I didn't take that to mean somebody placed him there. No, I took that to be, I I took that to be maybe because of the events of Dark Knight Death Metal, he was just another one of the people that came back. Well, he, something something's clearly at play here because uh because uh somebody is moving because somebody sucks savitar back out at the end so somebody pulls him back savitar is is defeated but somebody pulls him back when he's defeated he's actually sucked out he goes no i don't want to go back not to the darkness not to the who's pulling savitar back i think I, I it's the, dark side I, uh, I took it as Wally West took all his power, and so he got sucked back into where he, he he no longer had the power to be outside the Speed Force. Well, I, but, I mean, well, who I, does? I, I, I think uh, I actually I think that well, uh, you could be right. I, I don't know, but I mean, I mean, uh, why would he be sucked back in? Like, I what what's the force sucking him back in? It wouldn't be the Speed Force sucking him back. Like, I mean. He's lost his connection to the speed force. Somebody wants Savitar back because they, uh, for some reason, because they probably don't want him talking. And I'm thinking that, uh, I mean, who would want a connection to the speed force? The speed force goes through all the multiverse and all the omniverse. To me, uh, it would make sense to me that Darkseid needs a speedster. And now, although he has, he does seem to have Barry Allen in infinite uh, front infinite frontier secret files it just it's interesting something's at play here somebody well it does say it does say boom when he gets sucked back in so you you might be right you might be right but my point still stands that roy harper chose to pierce the speed force bubble by a conscious decision and killed all the people that were frozen (laughs) i don't see how that's a I, i just uh, you see, that seems to bother that. you, and I don't know why that bothers you so he, much. They were dead anyway. <laughs> they were dead anyway. They, again, I go back to you're saying they were dead anyway because. Well, but by your it, argument, it, Chase, you could you could you could blame Barry Allen for letting his mom die. He went back and saved his mother's life. Flashpoint paradox happened. Then he went back and then he then he prevented himself from saving his mom. So then, by by your no, logic, no, no, Barry no, Allen killed his mom. Changing. No, no, no. See, that's where you're wrong. That's what what you're you're missing. You're misunderstanding what I'm saying. If we are saying, according to what Barry Allen said in this issue, that you can't go back and change things. Like Ollie wants to do things differently, right? Oliver Queen wants to do things differently so that Roy Harper doesn't die. But what we are told in this issue is all along when we read Heroes in Crisis, we thought that it was Wally West losing control. Yeah, and that what's what caused the explosion and everybody died. But according to the events in this issue, what really happened, what really caused the explosion all along was Roy Harper firing. No, it was the speed. It was the speed force caused the explosion. The speed force caused the explosion because Roy Harper pierced it with an arrow. No, no, no. The speed force. 
before before speed Wally no speed for the speed force came and created the explosion and 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 it it, it before before one of the electric the elect before one of the speed forces electrical bolts contacted Roy Harper he was out that there was a temporal bub bubble created so Roy Harper managed to avoid it but that that explosion that temporal bubble which happened to just happened to be created there for for some because of the workings of the speed force but that that explosion it was already in the course of happening it just needed to finish so i mean okay I mean, okay so so it's this i agree with you that, that but it's just a matter of semantics right temporal bubble speed force bubble whatever you want to call it the point being that they were all frozen and at that point just like oliver queen was saying they could have tried to find a different way except and you admit this wally couldn't do it wally could not allow that explosion to finish and kill everybody he's already been carrying around the guilt of thinking that he killed all these people the person that actually allowed that actually causes the explosion to finish and thus makes it immutable that all these people die and they can't come back is roy harper yeah. roy Harper's the one that fires the arrow and says no we're not going to try to find another way because Flashpoint, because Wally won't make the decision, because whatever reason you want to give, Roy Harper says, the explosion's going to finish. We're not going to save anybody. Everybody's going to die. Conscious choice by Roy Harper. And my point is no DC fan is going to be complaining about the fact that Roy Harper did that. You yourself are defending Roy Harper. But when Wally West was the one that supposedly was responsible, everybody wanted to Take Tom King out and string him up by the neck. That is my point. That is my point. I don't understand why DC editorial feels the need to undercut their writers to, you know, disavow a story that just happened four years ago. Why did you give approval to it if you didn't want it to happen? I don't, I don't understand. I don't agree with it. I think it is poor form and I don't like it. I don't like it. And I've been liking this Jeremy Adams flash run up to this point, but it feels cheap. It feels like the thousandth redemption of, uh, of Wally West. It doesn't feel necessary. I will agree with you that the Fernando Passerin art is absolutely spectacular. The Brandon Peterson art less so, um, but all the pages you pointed out were Fernando Passerin. So we agree there, but no, I, I mean, I didn't care for it because it undermines so much of what has come before. You know, you yourself, you've, you've talked about it before where, you know, why are we, everything's supposed to count? Why are we supposed to care? It's this kind of stuff that I think makes, that turns people off, you know, and maybe it's just fan service. And a lot of people are going to be like, no, it's fine. It's fine. I mean, I love Wally West as much as the next guy, but I just think it's poor form editorially. To just uh, yeah, I'm, throw I'm not going to disagree that it's performed ed editorially. The, the, the Heroes in Crisis, Crisis should never have been approved. Uh, but uh, look, uh, look, uh, you know, you know, Hell Jordan shouldn't have destroyed the entire Green Lantern Corps. Fortunately, we had Jeff <laughs> yeah. Johns. Jeff Johns came along and uh, masterfully undid that, or he didn't undo it. He explained it. Uh, and Jeremy Adams has pulled a masterful. He is easily on par with Jeff Johns with what he did here. I got to disagree with you there. <laughs> I this, would, this, I, this, I, 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 there's no question. This is Jeff Johns level masterpiece. What Jeremy Adams has pulled off in this issue. They have, they have tried to redeem 
what Wally West did and change around what happened and whatever. So many times they've thrown so many things against the wall. This is no different. I don't think this is masterful. First of all, if I have any complaint about Heroes in Crisis, it's that it's the whole idea of this loop is too convoluted. Um, and most people aren't going to don't, I think most people don't understand heroes in crisis. First of all, like forget about who's responsible <laughs> for the death or whatever. It's a convoluted story, uh, in the first place, uh, and hard to understand with the whole time travel thing. And they've thrown so many different, Oh, well this happened and this happened and this happened. This is just another one of those. I don't think it's particularly original. So I, I mean, and nothing against Jeremy Adams, but to call it Jeff John's level, I didn't get that at all. Um, it's a fine story. It definitely takes the blame off of Wally West and puts it on Roy Harper, even though, except for the three people that are going to listen to this podcast, nobody will know that because nobody's reading Flash that I know of, um, especially the annual. I mean, as much as I say it's cool that they put it in the annual because we get this giant story, there are people that read the regular series that don't even read the annuals. Hopefully they know to pick this up. But I'll be curious to see what people are saying this week on social media if uh they're singing the praises of this as a as a final comment uh, this this also resulted in another super powerful for wally west of flash he now has uh surge energy he's now capable of uh uh, of nitro boost a, uh, nitro boosts of, of of a nitro speed force boost whenever he wants to access it but i get the impression it was implied that he could probably only use it once and, and then he has to sort of recharge for a little bit before he can do it again but it's yeah it's a, it's a nitro boost for the speed force so yeah i wonder if he'll be naked after he uses it like the <laughs> superman the superman solar thing that jeff johns came up with yeah. um yeah it's it's an interesting idea. Uh, Wally West, once again, the fastest man alive, faster than Barry Allen. Uh, I don't yeah! know. Wally's getting <laughs> all the love. Uh, I, I I don't know. My my flash is Barry Allen. I you know, and I'm surprised. You're I mean, you're older than I am. You uh, I don't I, know. You didn't I, I never Barry lost Allen. a wink of sleep when when Barry Allen. I remember reading Carmen Infantino. Uh, Carmen Infantino is the Flash uh, in pre-original crisis in the uh, late 70s yeah. and uh, I, I never I, I was not a fan of it I thought he was boring when Barry Allen died uh, I thought he had a spectacular death he has the he had the best best death in comic book history was Barry Allen and the biggest mistake they made was in Final Crisis bringing him back I, I he was he's been he's he's a character that's so much more interesting dead than alive <laughs> <laughs> and I've always felt that. And Wally's always been. I remember buying the first issue of Wally West Flash post original Crisis on Infinite Earths, and yeah, I loved that it. I loved it. But yeah. but yeah. But anyways, I mean, I I mean, obviously we're, we're I'm a Wally and you're a Barry fan, so that's why we had this long discussion. So <laughs> yeah, uh, this is not this is not uh, Dark Knight Nation and Comic Boom, despite our. <laughs> We're we're at it tonight between yeah. Tim Drake and Wally West and yeah, interesting. Yeah. So, uh, all right, on to Wonder Woman number seven seventy five. Uh, so this is written by uh, Michael W. Conrad and Becky Cloonan. We have art by Andy McDonald, colors by Nick Filardi, letters by Pat Brousseau. And long story short, Wonder Woman manages to bring the gods back um, by answering three riddles, which I thought was. It's not a Batman comic, and it's not the Riddler. Um, but I mean, it, 
I, I did appreciate it, and and there is uh, a long history of riddles being tied to mythology and and that sort of thing, and so I thought that worked pretty well. Um, if it, even though it felt a little anticlimactic, and and I only say that because Rocky and I felt that the end of the first arc was a little anticlimactic. It was building up to something big, and then all of a sudden it was just over. Um, and so I I don't want it to be the fact that this creative team can't nail an ending. Um, but it did feel like a little, I mean, it, she was such a struggle to get there and to discover, you know, where they were. And then she just had to answer three riddles and then she was allowed to choose one God to stay behind. And then the, the rest were all restored. So yeah, I guess we'll, we'll see what the next story arc brings. I'm my jury is still out, uh, in my mind for this, uh, this creative team. I am looking forward to the next arc in terms of art wise. I, I imagine Travis Moore is going to return uh, on the next arc and uh, the Travis Moore cover on this one with all the hands reaching through the, the gate or whatnot, I think is absolutely spectacular. So I'm very much looking forward to that. Not to say that Andy McDonald art wasn't good, um, but I just think that Travis Moore art is a little more dynamic and I, I like the camera angles he uses more. Um, and I, I just think his line work is a little, uh, a little more polished. Uh, but there was a lot, a lot to like in this issue. I, I did like when, uh, when Wonder Woman does kind of confront the the graveyard keeper, whatever his name is, uh, and and he feels that uh, Boston Brand, Dead Man's talking a little bit too much. He pulls the the Keanu Reeves Matrix move on him, where he removes his mouth uh, so he can't talk. So I thought that was uh, pretty cool as well. <laughs> so all in all, a, a pretty good issue, but I, I just worry that the the endings of these wonder, first couple of Wonder Woman stories have they haven't ended with a lot of impact uh, yet. So uh, I guess we'll have to see. And there's a backup that we'll we'll touch on briefly. Uh, as well. So what were your thoughts on this one, Rocky? Well, I'm going to rant. I'm going to rant. And uh, I, I've I've sung the praises of the first, uh, you know, uh, two or three Wonder Woman issues. I, I thought it was interesting, you know, the, I mean, b- bear in mind, let's just back up for a second. You know, Wonder Woman at the end of Death Metal supposedly did something heroic. I've questioned the so-called heroism of it, but whatever. I, I think she lost to the Batman who laughs and she decided to sacrifice all of the universe because she didn't want, uh, she didn't want the cosmic gods to, uh, she she she'd rather everyone die instead of surrender to uh, the Batman who laughs and try to live to fight another day. So the cosmic gods rewarded her by basically make you know making her um I don't know elevating her ascending her and then the cosmic gods recreated or I guess sort of reformed the multiverse and Wonder Woman now apparently I don't know if this is the god sphere that 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 that's the question is but. Bear in mind what happened. A squirrel named Ratatosk, a squirrel decided that Wonder Woman, instead of going to uh, Olympus uh, after her death, went to Asgard instead. A squirrel. No, 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 no. He did not decide. He pulled some strings, oh. some, some favors oh. from somebody oh. else. Okay, he pulled some. Okay, fine. Thank you. He so pulled he uh, a squirrel, pulled some strings. Okay. A squirrel pulls some strings. Okay, so I, all I'm saying is, now, bear in mind, as a story, as a story, the, the merging of the Norse gods and the, and the Greek gods and the mythologies, it's just, as a story in and of itself, it's, 
it's good. It's it's entertaining. It's fun. However, to it it's it's done a terrible job in my view, exemplifying Wonder Woman's status in the DC universe. This is far too much emphasis, I think, on mythology and not enough on really bringing her forward. Even here, I mean, she's in the graveyard of the gods, and she wants to. I mean, like the the Olympic the Olympian gods are supposed to apparently when they die they're supposed to be on Olympus. She wants to go to the graveyards of the gods to take the the Olympic gods who apparently were were killed. They were killed by this god called Janus, and now they're now they're buried on or they're they're in the graveyard of the gods. And as someone as just a, a lay person, I know a little bit about mythology, but I think to myself, can if I if where are you going to bury a god? Does it not make sense? You're going to bury a god in a place called the graveyard of the gods, but no, she wants to go there. Apparently, the gods that she wants shouldn't be buried in the graveyard of the gods, which is where you're supposed to bury gods, I thought. But no, she wants to go and get the Olympic gods away from the graveyard of the gods to put them back on Olympus. But it's never really explained why. Like, what's at stake? Who cares if the Olympic gods or the Olympus gods are buried in the graveyard of the gods? Who cares? They're dead anyway, They're dead. aren't they? Huh? They're dead. I know they're she dead anyway. Back, she brought them back to life. No, well, she's it, gone. But, she's gone to the afterlife of the gods. The graveyard of the gods is the is the place where the gods go when they die. If well, she gets no, them back on Olympus, but, they're but alive. She was supposed to, but I, when, when Wonder Woman died, she was supposed to ascend to Olympus, wasn't she? No, she because of what happened with the Omniverse and and the heroic, uh, you know, actions that they took. They, like you said, they. They, whoever they is, elevated her and gave her a chance to be part of the quintessence. And when she chose to go back to the land of the living, instead of going back to the land of the living, because she rejected being part of the quintessence, she was supposed to go back to the land of the living. But Ratatosk pulled some strings with whoever and took her to Valhalla instead. So then she was stuck in Valhalla and we had that whole story. But then she has returned she's taken one step closer to the land of the living because she goes from Valhalla to Olympus, which again is a step above, you know, being in the land of the living or, or, you know, earth or whatever you want to call it. It's a plane above where the gods live. And then she goes from Olympus to the graveyard of the gods, which is where the gods go when they die. And she wants to go and save the gods and resurrect them. And she answers the riddles. And now the gods are, are alive once again, but they're living on their plane of existence, which is Olympus. Okay, that's the so, way I'm reading it. Okay, well that that makes that makes more sense. Thank you for that. So now she's in the graveyard of the gods, and she's having, and she's she's, and apparently the gatekeeper of the graveyard, you know, he's so lonely that he's so bored that instead of having to fight him, all she has to do she challenges him to a game of wits, and that's all it takes. And these aren't particularly yeah. difficult riddles. That's all yeah. it takes to resurrect, to resurrect all these dead gods and take them back to Olympus and restore the powers that be, and everything's fine. And and by the way, one of the gods that she resurrects is Hera, who was killed by Darkseid when she was a member of the Quintessence. So I'm not sure how she wrecked resurrected Hera, who uh, I thought I thought when Darkseid. I'm a little bit confused there, but I guess that's just I'm confused on a lot of things clearly. But, anyways, I, I, I don't. I, I, I just found this whole thing to be, and even Boston Brand here, Dead Man, 
the, the whole thing here just seems off to me. I think the art by Andy McDonald I is so inappropriate. Like it's this is so jarring to me. This is this is like uh this I, I don't I wanna be sugarcoat my words here, but I I d I didn't like this art at all. I thought it was terrible. Uh I don't think that given Wonder Woman's important status, Wonder Woman's trying to make her way back to the to the living, but instead we've got I mean, we got so much going on here. We got Dark Side with multiple aspects of himself. We got I just this is such this is so disappointing that this is what is bringing her back to the land of the living is I I don't like I just I I'm just not feeling this, man. I just and then and then the way this ends, she ends up dropping down another well. I mean, there's way too there's way too much mythology here. And and when I I say that all the time about Wonder Woman and people always criticize me and say, "Well, you know, well, comic boom. It's uh, you know, it's 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 Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman's all about mythology. She's got a lot of mythology." And I say, "What what most people, in my view, Wonder Woman is more interesting when she has adventures more in with humanity. She's not she's not a relatable character. There's a reason why we have Yara Floor, who's infinitely more interesting than Diana right now, and always has because she's like she's more human. She's just more likable. She's got a personality." This is exactly the type of stories that are going to keep people away from Wonder Woman. And I just, I just, it just drives me crazy. And she's like, I don't know. It just, like, now she's going to go to a place called Elfheim. And like, this is just, I don't know, man. I mean, clearly I just, I don't have an appreciation for the mythology or in terms of what, what they're trying to do here. But I just, uh. You know, you obviously liked it better than I did, but I, this whole thing just rubbed me the wrong way. I figured this thing, th this was a good opening two, two or three issues there where she meets Thor and meets Greek mythology. It should have ended there. And then we, I, I thought they literally, I thought those were like just one-off tales. I didn't think that I, I was really thinking they were just one-off tales. And now to find out that this is actually, this is the story that, 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 that this is one long story that's bringing her back. This is, this is like so disappointing to me. It's so disappointing. But well, they've got to have her. They can't have her back on earth. You just said it yourself. Yara Floor, despite you said yeah, she's more likable. I'd argue that Yara Floor was very unlikable in issue two of Wonder Girl, yeah, especially no. <laughs> in that plane scene. No. Uh, but yeah, they got to keep Diana Prince off, off the table because you got to give Yara Floor her time in the sun. So that's why she's in the God sphere. I do agree with you that the emphasis does feel like it's on the mythology instead of on Wonder Woman herself. And I think there's a way to do this where it doesn't feel that way. Um, but I thought you, I mean, you didn't have this strong of opinion on this part two of this story. So, and, and it was Andy McDonald art in part two of the story as well. So I'm, I'm yeah, a little confused well, why well, the second part of the story was okay, but the third part yeah. just it fell off a cliff. No, that that's legitimate. The, 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 the answer to that is that I just, it it just suddenly hit me it just how it just suddenly it literally just hit me that this was this is the this is the storyline that's going to be leading into bringing Wonder Woman back and it just it just irritated me and it just it, it just irritated me and i cuz it, it to me this feels like an elseworld story and it was and it, it's a good one 
like it's 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 a decent one, but it's drowned in mythology, and now we have riddles and with gods, and this is standard mythological stuff. I I get it. I, I know that. Yeah, I, I know very, that. I get it. I get it. But yeah. th- th- but this is this is one like Wonder Woman isn't all mythology. She is she the hero that that's that's that supposedly saved the multiverse. This is what she's relegated to post death metal. These are the stories that we're getting to bring her back. Again, I, like, this again, is, I blame, I, just, I blame, I blame DC editorial, and I blame the fact that there's another Wonder Woman, and she was supposed to get her own TV show, and that <laughs> has everything to do with why you got to take this Wonder Woman off the table. Yeah. So I, it, it's very mythology heavy. I agree, and that's what I said when I, you know, mentioned those riddles that ties in with mythology. <laughs> As well, riddles are a huge part of mythology and ancient storytelling and whatnot. So it didn't surprise me to see that was the way that she, uh, you know, was able to save the day and shows her intelligence. And yeah, I mean, it's fine. But yeah, uh, I expect this to continue. This is very much what the God Sphere is in my mind. It's traveling through these different mythologies and seeing how Wonder Woman in seen how Diana Prince well, yeah. interacts with But them. the thing is that my, my, my standard criticism for this is that there is never a consequence. I mean, who cares if she gets caught in the God spear? Who cares if she never returns if we already have a Wonder Woman? And, and also, what's at stake? What's really at stake here? Does anybody care if the Olympi- Olympus gods are dead? Like, what's really at stake? Wonder, like, Wonder Woman does. Well, no, no, for, I, I realize that. For but, us but I mean, as the for reader, readers. For us as... For us like, as the readers, no. When you're when you're talking ancient mythology, these are dead. These are dead stories. These are dead people. These are dead ideas. So I just, yeah, I I agree. I agree with you. I can't uh, relate to any of this. Like as as a citizen, if I was a citizen of the DC universe, I mean, right now we're in the middle of the multiverse. Everybody remembers that there's a multiverse, and everyone's talking about it, and all this excitement building toward inf- uh, Infinite Frontier, and then. We're, we're supposed to give a crap that the Olympic gods are, 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 are dead now and they're buried in the graveyard of the gods? Well, isn't well, they're dead. Isn't that where they're supposed to be buried? And like we, you and I just finished having a big argument and debate about, you know, Roy Harper killing people. And it's like, you know, and, you know, and, and they're, they're going to bring back a bunch of dead gods. <laughs> I don't know, man. I just, uh, yeah, whatever. Yeah. I, I, I'm venting. All right. Well, let's move on to Infinite Frontier. Number two, this is written by your favorite writer, Joshua Williamson. We have Paul <laughs> Pelletier, Jesus Moreno, Zermonico as pencils, Norm Ratman, Jesus Moreno, and Zermonico listed as inkers. Romulo Fajardo Jr. does the colors, Tom Napolitano on letters, uh, Mitch Garrett's cover, and a Brian Hitch and Alex Sinclair cover. So, uh, yeah, what did you think of uh, old Josh rolling out uh, more hints at a an omniverse and a crisis to come well i first of all i I will say that overall i uh i didn't like the cover uh this cover with uh that shows cameron chase and she uh, which this is i mean she's she's actually in the hall of justice and she approaches the hall of justice to talk to batman and superman confronting superman and batman about what they know about the multiverse as if somehow they're criminals and if they're hiding something this cover is very underwhelming and uh i'm, I'm on a little bit of a rant here uh, again because i find the art here the even this brian hitch cover has got to be one of his one of his most disappointing covers i've seen in a long time i don't know this is almost has, has a men in black sort of feel to it yeah. i 
Like, I, you know, it's this weird, I mean, I'm not really sure what director, we're still not really sure what director Bones is doing with Cameron Chase, but we get some more hints here. And this is Earth Zero. It's at the Hall of Justice. And she basically talks, she just, there's a lot of wasted pages here. She just talks with Batman and Superman and Batman and Superman just tell her what we already know. Like that everybody is aware that the multiverse exists and that there was this, she, she uh, summarizes everything that there was the source wall, that there was a perpetua fought the Batman who laughs. And then the cosmic gods rewrote reality or rewrote the, 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 the multiverse. And uh, yeah. And, and then she, and that's pretty much it. So the Justice League have an emergency. So that conversation's ended. So she decides she's going to go talk to Captain Adam uh, because Director Bowen says, you go talk to Captain Adam, you know, because we're trying to find out more information. It's clear that Director Bones and Cameron Chase, they're trying to gather as much information as they can about this because obviously they perceive a threat and we're not even sure what per threat they perceive. Although it was hinted at in Secret Files, but actually it was shown that that director Bones is aware, I think, of Darkseid because he's aware of Psycho Pirate because he got a tape recording from Psycho Pirate, and I think he's aware that Darkseid is is got some something going on. Meanwhile, there's the the ship that the Flashpoint Batman was delivered in Earth twenty three on in in the last issue. Fragments of that ship have shown up on Earth eight, Earth eleven, seventeen, twenty six, twenty, Earth five, seven, and forty one, and it's uh. And apparently, it's it doesn't it doesn't have a frequency. And if you remember, when Be uh, Barry Allen ended up on the Omega World, which is an Earth that doesn't have a frequency that it, no vibrational frequency, and that's interesting. So it suggests does that ship come from uh, from Omega from the Omega World? Uh, it's interesting. We then have a conversation between Flashpoint Batman and Calvin Ellis. And I was very disappointed to discover, I was very disappointed to discover that this Flashpoint Batman is the same Flashpoint Batman, that his history has not been rewritten, that this is unfortunately Tom King's Flashpoint Batman. This is not... Wait, 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 wait. Why is it Tom King's... Why do you... I mean, would it be Jeff I don't like... Because I don't like what he did with... I don't like what Tom King did with Flashpoint. He ruined Flashpoint Batman. He ruined this... He ruined Thomas... He didn't, create, he, didn't, he didn't create the character... Uh, but he ruined the character for me. He ruined the well, character. Well, for I, don't, me. I just don't understand why you call him Tom King's. I mean, he's Jeff. John, Jeff Johns is the one that created the characters. Jeff Johns, Flashpoint <laughs> no, Batman. No, no. He doesn't no, act like I, he doesn't I'm, act in this in this issue. I'm the way saying Tom that King had him act. Thomas Thomas Wayne here references all the mistakes he made, and the the mistakes he ma he's referencing are the mistakes he made in Tom King's Batman run. And hopefully that'll be the end of it and we can get a Thomas Wayne who's worthy of the mantle of being a hero, which I think we're going to go back to. I, we are. But it just, it, it just, I was really hoping that, that they could just breeze all over that. But unfortunately they Always embraced it because up. everything matters, right? But in, in any event, they, they end up looking for these other fragments on Earth-22. They get attacked by Magog. And, uh, you know, and... And then we're all of a sudden we're on Earth Zero, and we got Alan Scott Obsidian uh, along with Vandal Savage and Mister Terrific, and they're looking for Jade. And um, we it's discovered that when the, uh, the when the totality was first formed, 
uh, post-death metal that the first thing they did was run a scan of, of how many people returned from the multiverse, when, from the multiverse, how many people were dead and, and who was missing. And, uh, there's, you know, then, then they rattle off all these characters that are missing and they're not really sure where they're, where they are. And just, it just has Jade uh, or Obsidian and Green Lantern, Alan Scott getting very upset with Vandal Savage because uh, Vandal Sav- Savage, uh, while he was very rude about it, I actually agree with him. You know, get Obsidian to shut up, and why don't we just, you know, let's 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 continue our work and get the job done. But they want to go and they want to look for uh, for Jade. Where are they going to go looking for Jade? I have no idea. It would make more sense, one would think, to stay with Mister um, Terrific and Vandal uh, Vandal Savage. But you know, there you have it. Um, the most interesting aspect for me is. Once again, seeing Roy Harper, he's trying to figure out the Black Lantern ring. He does. He's uh, and he has a, a great memory of uh, of Hal Jordan telling him to have confidence in yourself, take control, believe in yourself, and that gives him the power to figure out how to use the Black Lantern ring. And he flies around and he does target practice. It's kind of a cool scene. And then out of the blue, he's got images of Psycho Pirate. Flashpoint Batman and he sees a, an image of Leon, his daughter, and he he demands to see his daughter. But of course, all of a sudden there's Dark Side is so and and he gets sort of possessed. And it's I think it's clear the the suggestion is that Dark Side controls the Black Lantern core. I, that's the implication. That's what I'm getting out of it. And that Roy Harper is going to be an unwilling uh underling of uh dark side that he will ultimately have to fight against and rebel against at some point down the line and that's my favorite scene very interesting scene as well is when cameron chase then goes she when she leaves the justice league she goes and she interviews captain adam and she discovers that he's not actually captain adam he's actually captain adam from another universe who is actually fleeing and hiding from somebody who he doesn't want to find him. And of course, I think the suggestion is that the implication is that the person that Captain Adam is hiding from and is so afraid of that he explodes himself, seemingly killing himself and Cameron Chase, is is Darkseid. Is that he's that afraid of Darkseid that he's willing to kill himself to, to go back and be an underling for Darkseid. So I gotta I gotta say. As uh, overall, this is raising the stakes. I, this is raising the stakes. I'm really curious to see where this is headed. If my, if my one, I have one criticism and that is artistically, I wish the art was a little bit better. When I think of past build up to previous crises, I, I, I'm just, I, I, I'm just thinking of uh, just better, better artists. I, I think some of the, the art and the secret files was, was subpar. And here I wish it was a little bit better, but Hey, Look, I'm happy. I'm happy. The story is moving forward. I'm really curious as to where we're going. And at the end, of course, we talked about earlier about all these questions. Uh, it's, you know, DC has me hooked on this. And I'm and when I'm frustrated, I'm frustrated in all the right ways. Well, there's a reason Joshua Wimson your favorite writer. So, <laughs> well, I, I got to give him credit on this. I mean, like he's not doing a bad job on this. He's not doing a bad job. He's doing some things that frustrate me, but I, I don't. Ex- he's this. This has a lot of moving parts, and uh, I'm hopeful that if he, 
you know, I'm hopeful that all these parts will come together. I do have that hope. Yeah, you know, it's easy to to read the story, read this issue, much like the first issue, it jumps around from plot line to plot line and talk about the choppiness of it. But, you know, I I think back to Crisis on Infinite Earths, which, you know, was beloved and that hopped around too. So I can't really, I can't really point to that as a a, a criticism, although um, I do feel like the the pacing here, it, it, that may be what it is. It's jumping around, but it, it's also moving. Yes, it is moving forward, but at a slower pace. And this is only six issues. So I just wonder, you know, I just have a feeling it's going to be, okay, six issues of Infinite Frontier, and then we're just immediately going to move into something else, you know, a new mini series that's going to be the next part of part of the story. Why not just... And this is only act one, right? There's supposed to be three yeah. acts, I think. Yeah. yeah, so why not just, ha- you know, put it all in one series and, and whatever. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's coming out bi-weekly, is that right? I, I believe or, so, yes. Yeah, so you're already, uh, you know, with a bunch of artists here, and that's why the art, to me, because I agree with you, Rocky, it's not, not the best. We've got Pelletier, Marino, and Zermonico. Like, give them each a issue. Their styles are close enough that it'll work, but don't have them all work in the same issue uh, and make it a weekly, like, you know, 52 was or, or countdown or something like that. Um, I mean, that, that's kind of what I, what I think, because when you have these types of stories where you're jumping around from, okay, here's a snippet of the obsidian green lantern story. Here's a snippet of the Roy Harper story. Here's a snippet of the, um, uh, the uh, captain Adam story or, or whatever. Um, and you got to wait in between. It's like, it, it feels more choppy as opposed to getting, you know, something every, every week. So uh, cliffhanger ending, we're told next Alice got in the city and kick ass. Where are they looking for Jade? Well, they said, start looking for her in the dark. Uh, could they possibly run into Roy Harper there? Um, I mean, he's got the black lantern ring and they are looking in the dark. So that I'm just, I'm just ready for some of these storylines to start to come together. Some of these threads to start to make sense. Um, how, I, I mean, we, you, we talked earlier about Roy Harper not being dead anymore, but if he's not dead anymore, then how, how is he wielding a black lantern ring? Yeah. Um, cause he was dead, I guess. I don't know. I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure what's going on there either. Uh, so I guess, yeah, I, I'm, I'm still in, I'm still curious. Um, but I'm just not sure on the pacing and the plotting if this is the best, if this is the best way to go. Um, but I don't know. I, 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 jury's still out. I'm not saying it's good. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm saying, I don't know yet. Uh, I like a lot of the big ideas, but how it's all going to pay off, eh, I guess we'll see. So let's move on to the last book. Uh, it's Rorschach issue number 10. This is from uh, Rocky's least favorite writer, Tom King, uh, Jorge <laughs> Fornes on interiors, Dave Stewart on colors, Clayton. Not my least favorite them. writer. He's just written some stinkers, you know. Man, you you take every chance to throw him under the butt. Yeah, this thank God it's not Tom King's Thomas Wayne. <laughs> Heroes in Crisis and, and 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 his Batman run were actually his 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 two works that I just don't like very much at all. And uh, and uh, you know and and you call and you call him out on it every chance you get. Well, when it comes up in in context as it does tonight, absolutely yes. 
Fantastic. <laughs> uh, well, this, so this is interesting. We got two issues left of Rorschach, but this one, this issue is sort of summarizes everything that's been going on and fills in a lot of the questions and the, the holes that we've had. And it, it really, once again, shows the brilliance of this detective uh, and how he's put all, all this together. And there are still some questions to be answered. And I'm still not 100% sure where Tom King is, is taking us. I have a couple of suspicions. Um, I thought this was great. Uh, I just I loved how it pulled together some of the threads earlier and, and some of the plot points that weren't quite so clear. Um, and I would, I would almost say, I would almost say that if you haven't read a single issue of Rorschach that you could pick up this issue, issue 10 and read what's been going on and, and be able to follow the, the last couple issues with what goes down. I would almost say that. Um, the other thing that I'll say, and uh, I, I hate it when people do it, but they do it nonetheless. And I get where it's coming from. Um, and it's the whole idea of this is this being an unauthorized sequel. And DC is given Dave Gibbons and Alan Moore a raw deal for, you know, 30 years or however long it's been since Watchmen came out. And I point back to the fact that nobody held a gun to those guys' heads. And they signed an agreement that said as long as Watchmen was in print, DC would retain the rights and it's never gone out of print and it's not like dc kept it in print when it wasn't selling just to maintain the rights that book has always sold so if you're alan moore and dave gibbons and you you think you've created a masterpiece why and then you would assume that it would always be in print and you would never get the rights back right so like i, I don't understand and so when people badmouth of this and i know a lot of people do i and, and here's what they say i would never read that because of what DC has has done to Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons, and that that's garbage. That's a terrible series. Like, wait, you just said you never read it. Why are you criticizing it? You know, for without even looking at, without even reading it. And when you sit here and you read this story, and I've read every issue, it, they could have not called this Rorschach. They could have called it anything and replaced the Rorschach character with somebody else. It doesn't even have to be set in the Watchmen world. This is just a cool kind of hard-boiled detective story with great characters, with great narration, with a lot of plot twists and turns and uh, mystery, and I love it. It's a great story, and I, I know that Tom was somewhat inspired by the Watchmen TV show, um, and it certainly does work in the Watchmen world with the, kind of the cynical nature of it, and, and so in that way it does work. Um, but again, I stand by my, my statement. This could work in any number of, of different settings um, and just change a few things here or there. So to all the people that are, are not reading it because of how you feel Alan Moore has been mistreated or Dave Gibbons has been mistreated and you're calling it garbage, um, yeah, you're, you're really not making yourself look very intelligent. I'll just put it that way. So, uh, and, and one, one more thing I'll say before I let Rocky give his thoughts. Uh, the Jorge Fornes art has been fantastic from the beginning. If anybody has ever read a hot lunch special from, uh, from Aftershock Comics written by Elliot Rahal, um, which is also very much a crime noir story. That was the first time I ever saw Jorge Fornes art. Like, I highly recommend that series. 
Uh, it has that same sort of feel that this has um, of that kind of you're reading a story in a world where everything is sort of cynical and kind of run down and grungy um, and you can't really you don't know who you can trust. You know, it just feels like there's a lot of crime. There's a lot of um, unsavoriness that's just under the, the surface of of polite society, as it were. Um, and the, this art and the style that he's using here reminds me so much of Hot Lunch Special, and it's it's absolutely fantastic. Jorge, you know, when Tom first discovered his art, which I think it was in that same series I'm talking about, he, he fell in love with it, and he brought Jorge over, and Jorge did some work on um, that series that Rocky Can't Stand, the, the Batman work, and people were talking about Jorge and comparing him to David Mazzucchelli and, and whatnot. I don't, I don't think that Jorge's... I mean, I can see why people look at it that way, but I think Jorge has uh, much more of a distinctive style than Mazzucchelli. Mazzucchelli is much more minimalist in my mind. Um, but when Jorge does Batman work, that style is much different than what he's doing here. Uh, what he's doing here, in, in my mind, is much more um, of a sort of uh, world outside your window kind of look, but his art is not photorealistic at all. Um, but it's, it feels much more human, much more relatable. And uh, that extends to facial expressions and posture. Uh, and I think he's a great storyteller. A lot of panels. Tom's really given him a workout. We know Tom likes to use uh, a lot of panels. So uh, I didn't go the full nine-panel layout <laughs> like the original Watchmen. Uh, but there's a lot of panels on a lot of these pages. So uh, this is fantastic. I can't wait till. Uh, I can check out the last two issues. Can't wait to see how all, all wraps up. And it's another one of those series that I can't wait till the last couple issues come out because as soon as I finish reading issue 12, I'm going to go back and reread issue one through 12, like all together and uh, as one big story. So uh, anyway, what, what were your thoughts on this Rocky? Yeah, I thought this was really, uh, I thought this was, has been really well done. I got to give uh, Tom King full props here. And I just want to be clear. I, uh, uh, by far the majority of what Tom King has written, I've been a fan of, uh, except his latter part of his Batman run and, and, uh, Heroes in Crisis. Uh, but it, but this is, you know, I've, I've liked to loved everything else. And this is definitely one that I've loved. One of the things that he does effectively here is, uh, something that not, not a lot of writers are capable of pulling off and, and what is, uh, and in fact, Tom King pulls off something here that he has not been as successful as in, dare I say, his Batman run. Uh, for example, uh, when you tell a good mystery, a really good mystery, a writer will give you the seeds and the answer before he tells you who did it. In other words, astute readers ought to be able to figure out what happened by the clues that are planted by the writer. That's a perfect, that's a really good mystery. Some writers, uh, like Jeff Loeb, for example, with Hush, will will tell a story and the there there's it's not really a mystery, but it's a claim to be a mystery, but it isn't because there are no clues that lead to who, uh, the, the, the clues just aren't, they're not, they don't come together very well. Um, in any event, I, uh, this is one where a lot of the clues that Tom King has planted in the previous nine issues, they actually come to fruition here. It's like, ah, 
you can connect the dots and you can you can see the narrative how the how the how the how this lieutenant this detective is piecing all the pieces together has placed them all together that we've witnessed in the previous nine issues up to this and he's explaining it all but he's giving it he's giving it more substance and he's he's flushing it out and he's adding some there are some additional elements it's not perfect because he does introduce a couple of new characters here that sort of uh add further sort of fodder there to the fire you know further oil you know gasoline to the fire but i really like that as a reader i feel rewarded reading this issue like you said you know you know like you said a, a new reader could read this issue and catch on right away except you would be robbed and deprived of the journey of the previous nine issues which i think are, re are rewarding and i would encourage a lot of people to actually pick up this series because it is really good it does pay off the art's fantastic and uh, I'm looking forward to see how all this wraps up myself. I mean, who who would have thought that, you know, President Redford, it really was the Redford campaign, it looks like, really did have something to do with the potential ass assassination attempt of candidate Tur Turley. Uh, and uh, the way that came about was so crazy, and yet it makes sense given the narrative, how it's progressed so far. And it's uh, just really impressive. So, yeah. Definitely a recommended read. Yeah, and the head of the re-election campaign for um, for President Redford, I, I think that's who the guy is that, that the detective is sitting there talking to throughout the yeah. issue. That's um, I think he's the one that's behind it. Could be. The, 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 the detective seems to suspect that as well because he took yeah. his fingerprints on the glass at the end of the, at the final page there. So I, I think you're right. But like you said, just more intrigue and it's 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 pretty pretty interesting. Yeah, and I, I, I sort of wonder, I mean, we haven't seen President Redford make an appearance at all. You wonder if at this point, I mean, I think he's going up for his fourth or his fourth reelection, his fifth term, I think is is what he's running for. Um and you kind of wonder if at this point he he's kind of a doddering old man and not even and it's about the fact that the people around him want to keep him in power because then they can do whatever the hell they want because they can just kind of manipulate him. So, uh, and, and I say that only because I, I know Tom likes to sort of put in some social commentary in his, uh, in his story. So, uh, I guess we'll see. I mean, I, I never watched the Watchmen HBO show, so I, I, I can't speak to, you know, drawing inspiration from that, but yeah, this is a really good book and, uh, I definitely recommend checking it out. Uh, all right. The only other book coming out from DC this week is Batman and Scooby-Doo Mysteries number four. Uh, we're not going to talk about that. Uh, but I will mention that we talked about last week, uh, Action Comics 2021 annual number one. We broke it down. We talked in detail. It didn't actually come out last week. It got delayed uh, till this week. So that's coming out on the 13th as well. So uh, if you're curious what we thought about Action Comics number uh Action Comics 2021 annual number one. Go listen to last, last week's episode. We broke it down for you there. So hopefully we don't get in trouble for breaking embargo. I don't. I don't think we will because it was uh, it was in our list for uh, the sixth, and then it got delayed at the the last That's moment. Great. So um, again, I want to extend my condolences to the family of uh, Robson Roca, his wife and his his child. Um, tremendous loss. For all uh, who knew him, uh, he's definitely going to be missed. 
I will miss his artwork. Um, fantastic uh, work on, on Aquaman and Green Lanterns, Hal Jordan and the Green Lantern Corps. Um, it's just a, a real tragedy. So a um, big, big loss for, for DC and for comic fans. Absolutely. Uh, I echo your condolences uh, to the family of Robson Rocker. Certainly. That, I, that's why I wore my Aquaman cap for this uh, life, for this uh, review, just in honor of him. So. Yeah. Fantastic artist. So, uh, well, that's it. That's going to do it for this episode. You got anything uh, you want to add, Rocky? I think this is a record for us. I think we've gone yeah, over <laughs> three hours. <laughs> no, I got to get some sleep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. So uh, to you listeners uh, and viewers on YouTube, uh, if you're checking us out on YouTube, be sure you go over to whatever your favorite podcast app is and give us a, a subscription. Subscribe to the RSS feed for the comic source so you don't miss any episodes. Likewise, if you uh, are just listening to the audio version, head on over to YouTube, do a search for Comic Boom! Exclamation point. Give Rocky's channel a, a subscription. Make sure you hit that notification bell so you know whenever he has new content coming out. And uh, comment on the video. I'm really curious to hear people's thoughts uh, about the Flash Annual. Are you, you know, happy that Wally West got redeemed for the umpteenth time? Are you more on my side of things? And same thing with the Tim Drake thing. I'm, I'm real curious to hear what people are gonna, gonna think. Because um, Rocky and I, de we definitely had our uh, differences of opinion on, on those books. So uh, it's always great when longtime comic readers like us pull different things out of the book. And uh, not that I need to be right. I don't, I definitely don't feel that. And Rocky doesn't either. Um, yeah. But it's just interesting that we both can read the same thing after, I mean, we probably have close to 80 years of comic reading between the two of us and we can read the same thing and pull different stuff out of it. It just goes to show what a great medium comics uh, are. So uh, again, thanks for reading everybody uh, or listening, watching, whatever it might be. We appreciate your support as always, and we'll talk to you next time. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes, as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.